Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 213 of the MCU Fan Show. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman as we welcome you to the Marvel Cinematic Multiverse. But first, we'll be discussing Marvel Studios Assembled, The Making of Loki. But before we do that, just want to let you know about the exclusive podcast we have available over at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. That's S-E-A-N-G-E-R-B-E-R, or just hit the link in our show notes. And over there, we have Patreon credit scenes that correspond with these podcast episodes, supplemental material where maybe we talk about a different topic, and the Patreon credit scene for episode 213 will feature our conversation about Michaela Cole being cast in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. What character do we think she might be playing or character characters that she might be playing in that film? Not that she's going to play multiple characters, but there are multiple options until we find out what the role is. So we will be discussing that in the Patreon credit scene, and that is available over at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, along with tons of other exclusive podcasts. And then make sure you're following us in all those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you are enjoying the podcast, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to everybody who's been sending in their reviews already. We had a bunch more this past week. So thank you so much. We are very, very grateful for you first taking the time, but then also saying some very kind things. That's very nice of all of you. So thanks so much for that. And now, without further ado, on with our show. How's it going, Paul Herman? I'm doing very well. I'm recording uh, live now at my uh, parents' house so they can get their uh, their granddaughter fixed and I can still record. And it's working and I think it sounds great. So I'm feeling great. I've got, I'm in the sunroom. I've got lots of sunlight coming in. So it's a very positive atmosphere at the uh, at the old Herman residence where I grew up. So uh, and funny enough, this is where I bought and read a lot, a lot of comic books and, and learned about the Marvel Universe. So it's very fitting that I'm recording an episode finally from uh, live from my parents' house. So yeah, this is a a good day. Good day to talk some Marvelness. Yeah, and you're sitting there in the sunroom with a new dawn in the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe, right? Because I can be really cheesy. So hey, yeah, the Marvel Cinematic Universe turned multiverse, and we teased this when we talked about the Loki finale that we would start diving into the whole idea of the multiverse and how that might be applied to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so eventually in this episode, because we've got something else to talk about first, we're going to dive in and talk about the specific projects that we already pretty much know are going to be dealing with the multiverse, as well as other aspects of it, like, of course, He Who Remains, slash Kang, slash whatever uh, that we are about to see. And we're also going to be taking or answering some of your questions that you already sent in, because I posted on our Instagram story, at MCU Fan Show for some of you to go ahead and send in questions about the multiverse. And you send in some very good questions, and we will answer some of those on this podcast. But before we get into that, we got to discuss the show that opened up the multiverse for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and that is Loki, because whenever we get to the end of a Marvel Studios series, we know the following week we get Marvel Studios assembled and then the making of episode. So, of course, now we have the making of Loki. And... I've really enjoyed these, and going back to even before Marvel Studios assembled the Disney Gallery Mandalorian series for the first season, and then the the single episode for season two, 
so happy that they're doing a new special to talk about the season finale of season two so they can actually get into the Luke Skywalker appearance, which was sorely missed in Mm -hmm. the Disney Gallery season two special. And ever since that whole idea of Disney Gallery, I was waiting for the Marvel version of that. And now we have this Marvel Studios Assembled series. Really enjoyed the episode for WandaVision. Really enjoyed the episode for the Falcon Winter Soldier. And I think I enjoyed this episode for the making of Loki even more. I just found this one to be so insightful into, I mean, they all are, but this one was particularly insightful about the characters and a lot of the the whys behind certain decisions and the intention in mm. every single piece of craft that was put together for this movie and, and or the series and this uh, and every single department and the work that they put in to really further the story and develop and say something about all of these characters that were involved uh, that I found really informative and, and really interesting in watching this making of episode. And um, the biggest thing that stood out to me, Paul, I'm curious uh, what stood out to you. The biggest thing that jumped out to me immediately was Tom Hiddleston, the producer. Yeah. Was something that really, really, uh, really stood out in this making of special because he was an executive producer on the series. But executive producer can sometimes be a funny title because sometimes it's contractual, like somebody gets an EP credit because Tom Hiddleston has played Loki for a long time. And so he stars in his own series. And this is part of the deal. Well, you'll get paid as an actor for the series. We'll also give you an EP credit and whatever. So sometimes it can be that sort of cynical process. But in this case, Tom Hiddleston really took his job as an executive producer seriously. And you could see Mm -hmm. that he was a creative force behind his project. And that's not to take anything away from Kate Heron, the director, or Michael Waldron, the head writer, or anyone else in the writing staff, or any of the other uh, you know, creative minds, uh, co-executive producer Kevin R. Wright, or Stephen Broussard, Kevin Feige, of course. It doesn't take anything away from anyone else, but it just points to Marvel Studios. It's always been a very collaborative environment, and Tom mm-hmm. Hiddleston was a very active part of that creative collaboration. I mean, I think he always has been to some extent, as an actor and informing who the character of Loki was going to be in the MCU, but it takes on another level when he was in this executive producer role and the way he was a leader on that, the Loki lectures, you know, the conversations mm-hmm. that he would have with Owen Wilson or Richard E. Grant about who this guy or the, and we heard about this even before the making of special, but it, it was those Loki lectures, but also just the way Tom was talking about it throughout this making of special where it became very clear that he had put just on his own and then with the rest of the group, put so much time and effort and thought into what this story was going to be for Loki and also helping to give everybody else the best possible sense of who this character was and therefore what this story would be in order to get, in order to tell the best possible version of this story. So I really like seeing, I mean, it's been great watching Tom Hiddleston, Mm -hmm. the actor, for the past decade in the MCU, uh, but it was also great to see Tom Hiddleston at work as a producer. Yeah, and that's, a, a, I think, my biggest takeaway, too, was the fact that Tom Hiddleston really cared about this series and, like you said, took it seriously. And I, that's one thing, I think, when when you dive into a franchise like Marvel or any franchise, whether it be Star Wars or DC or, or whatever, all things that I love and enjoy, you want the, the people who are part of it. They don't have to be you know entrenched in the the mythology and and love it like as we do as far as um 
you know, you know, match that like for like or whatever, because that's almost impossible because for a lot of us, we grew up on this stuff and a lot of these people coming into the business or, you know, from that creative side of it, they don't have that same, you know, affection for it, you know, not all the time and you don't need it. And I think Tom Hiddleston's a great example of someone who fell in love with the character and takes it seriously. Mm -hmm. And, and, and you take it seriously and you, and you love the character and what you do, you treat it with the most respect and kindness. I look at a Hugh Jackman as another example of that as someone who didn't come in with any knowledge of the character really. And then it became, he loved that character so much and he respected the character, you know, I hate to say it. Not every actor, director, writer loves and respects these characters. It just, and, and again, it's something, nothing that's, uh, over the years, you you kind of see it and you kind of accept it and just kind of deal with it when it happens. But when you have something special like Loki and a Tom Hiddleston, it is rare. And it is awesome to see someone like a Loki or like a Tom Hiddleston with Loki. And he, again, I keep I keep uh, thinking of Hugh Jackman and Wolverine because it's a very much similar way where he became an executive producer. He became involved in the creative decisions of the character. And he he became that character and he was you know you you can't think of Wolverine without Hugh Jackman anymore and i think Tom Hiddleston just oozes that same kind of affection and love and care for that um for his world and for Loki's you know where his well-being or his uh, creative well-being you could say and it's evident throughout this show and it, i just i love seeing that Again, he doesn't have to love the comics, but he loves and appreciates the character and wants to make sure he does the character right. And that because because of that, you dive into the material and you and you know what that character needs for the most part. And that's evident throughout this entire series of that. You know, again, he's not writing everything. He's not reading the comics and, and analyzing every little thing, but he's going in and making sure he puts the right people and helping them again, the Loki lectures. He's making sure that everything is cohesive to what the character and the world, the MCU need and i loved and, and appreciated that because that's what these franchises need they need people who love and respect and take it seriously not just be like oh yeah it's a story we just kind of whatever and and that's kind of what we're getting from the series and i think you see that throughout the entire show right i mean it's it's evident they care about this stuff there's so many easter eggs there's so many tie-ins and there's so much uh, tlc you know tender love and care for everything they're doing that you see mm -hmm. and then we, and it's evident through this whole um this whole hour uh special so that was definitely my biggest takeaway too is how much tom hiddleston was involved how much he cares and loves this uh project that he was working on it was really cool to see yeah, it really was. And it was also great to see the dynamic between Tom Hiddleston and his co-stars. Like there was a great moment with Richard E. Grant where when Tom was talking about, of course, just wanting to get Richard E. Grant for this role and how the concept art, which Wes Burt uh, had done for the Marvel Studios visual development team uh, that he was sharing this week where that was it was Richard E. Grant in the concept art before Richard E. Grant was signed on for the show because that was just kind of the dream of who they would want to get. And then just seeing, you know, Tom Hiddleston be so excited about that. Also, Richard E. Grant's like disappointment over not getting a, a muscle suit to go with his uh, his classic Loki uh, leotard. But then, you know, getting Richard E. Grant, uh, Tom Hiddleston getting uh, Richard E. Grant to say that he was living the dream because they're on camera uh, was a good bit. And then also everything between Hiddleston and Owen Wilson, like the long yeah. windup of like, who's going to play Mobius? And then like Owen Wilson expecting Tom to talk about how Owen Wilson was the one guy. And then but Tom was like, oh, well, here he is. Um, but then just going back to those Loki lectures and not just Tom Hiddleston and his thoughts on Loki, 
But the question that Owen Wilson asked, like, what do you love about Loki? Which I think is probably something Tom Hiddleston has been asked on press junkets and stuff like that over the years. But when you're asked that by a co-star as you're trying to inform them about the character and, and this world, it got Tom Hiddleston to kind of think about it maybe in a new way and, and describing Loki as the one who plays all the keys on the piano, mm. including the heavy keys and how that makes it into Mobius's dialogue. Like, I can play the heavy keys, too, was uh, awesome. And then the politeness of Tom Hiddleston to ask if Owen Wilson had ever played uh, Hamlet or ever played in Hamlet was uh, was funny. Um, But then just seeing Tom Hiddleston's leadership on this, like the speech after Mm -hmm. the first day of shooting where they're celebrating his birthday because his birthday is on February 9th, as Tom shares in this special, the first day of shooting was a day later, February 10th. Um, But as great as Tom Hiddleston is as Loki, you also get reminded of how bad of a choice he was for Thor. Uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, he wouldn't have been bad. I mean, you can't whole screen test. I mean, it's not like the screen test is the way a finished product would have looked right. for Tom Hiddleston as Loki. But yes, he originally auditioned for the part of uh, of Thor. And then um, and obviously you see in the screen test, I mean, maybe doesn't quite carry the same presence that Chris Hemsworth does, which points mm-hmm. to the right actor for the right role and the right role for Tom Hiddleston was Loki. And I loved hearing him kind of track how this character really emerged. And he's correct when he's pointing out that there was something that happened with that first Avengers movie where I think those of us who were paying very early attention to the MCU and watching Thor in 2011 really enjoyed Tom Hiddleston as Loki. But that mainstream Loki mania did not happen after Thor in 2011 because, frankly, Thor did very well and it was very successful relative to its time. But... It wasn't the Avengers, which blew the doors off the box office or the roof off the box office for the MCU. First MCU movie to clear a billion, nothing before that had done uh, when you go uh, actually cleared one and a half billion. But Mm -hmm. previously, Iron Man 2 in the six hundred million dollar range was the highest grossing Marvel movie. And so Avengers was a more popular movie in general, but a huge part of that popularity was Tom Hiddleston's turn as Loki. And that was when the world really took notice with this character. And as Hiddleston describes, the character had taken on a life of his own. And then going back to the Hall H thing with Tom Hiddleston coming Mm -hmm. out as Loki in San Diego Comic-Con 2013, and that being uh, a Kevin Feige suggestion. And then speaking of Kevin Feige, the meeting that Tom Hiddleston described where the Russos and Feige are there and they're telling him that here's what's going to happen with Infinity War and, and Endgame. And this is the way it's all laying out. And we don't, some things are going to change. But by the way, one thing we do know for sure is it's going to open with Thanos taking the test wreck from you and, and killing you. And just Tom Hiddleston kind of saying how he asked Kevin Feige, like, so that's it. And then Feige being like, yeah, um, I don't know. That must have been a slightly awkward conversation. But yeah. I, I think for Tom Hiddleston, I, I think what you saw there is as he's taking himself back to that meeting is this guy loves Loki. Like he was mm-hmm. genuinely sad when he thought that his time, I think he really was sad when he thought that his time as this character was uh, was coming to an end. Um, but then, as I mentioned before, it's not like Tom Hiddleston, while we're giving him credit as, and rightfully so, as an executive producer and a creative force behind this series, It works so well because of the other creative forces at work here. And I liked hearing director Kate Heron describe how 
She did what her agents and managers told her not to do for the meeting. Like, don't prepare a pitch. Just go in. It's general, whatever. And she ignored that advice and prepared a pitch, which co-executive producer Kevin R. uh, Wright said was probably like the greatest pitch he'd ever heard. And then Hiddleston talking about the conversation that he and Kate Heron had about what the story was going to be dealing with. And, And we've been through these different themes of identity and free will, but it was that idea of self-acceptance was Mm. something that Heron and Hiddleston talked about that really stood out. And I think that's where you see what makes these stories so special is it's not like Kate Heron is just wowing everybody with all the big effects sequences and, and all the big battles that she wants to create as part of the show, but just boiling it down to in the simplest but somehow still most meaningful terms about what the story means for the characters are involved and how that was really what connected Tom Hiddleston to her and, and her ideas for the series was also really great to hear. Yeah, that was one of my little takeaways, too, is that I love the fact that she kind of ignored her everyone's advice and went with the pitch. And I also want to say go with your people, gut. Yeah, exactly. Go with your gut. And also read the room, right? I mean, if if, there, if the medium wasn't going well, she probably doesn't you know, do that pitch, but probably she had it prepared just in case, you know, and then because they were all gelling and, you know, and vibing each other in, in all positive ways, she's like, hey, here's my idea. Bam. And then I don't know. I think she just came in and hit him with it. Who knows? Who know? I have no idea. But I mean, either way, I mean, yeah, you always come prepared, you know, and, that, and that's like you said, go with your gut. Yeah, come and, prepared, shoot your shot. Yep, exactly. And I think the thing for me, that I took away from her when she was talking about the show and what she wanted to talk about, of course, the self-acceptance was the biggest, and I get it, a great, great theme that is universal and will always stand the test of time because as identity as, as everyone in one way or another, I think struggles in, to be honest. And I think it was a great, again, the messages for all these shows have been for the most part been fantastic. And I love the themes they have. One of the things she did say, I thought was really interesting, Sean, she wanted to let the characters be ugly. And I really like mm-hmm. like that idea of showing their flaws. And that's what she means, obviously. And I love seeing the fact that like these Lokis, even though, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to be heroic, that he's still an antihero and he's still there's still like some some some, you know, maliciousness and at least a, l- a little bit in there. And, you could, you know, they're not perfect people. And I think that it was great to kind of see that side. And she really wanted to, you know, explain show these people not being like now he's a completely turned around person and, and, and even Sylvie and, and all that. So that was a really cool thing. And I, I think that she kind of said that I thought was perfect for the show is it really show that these characters are not perfect. And then again, it's emphasized obviously at the end of the, uh, the last episode, right. With the, he who remains is saying like, you know, hypocrite, you know, you know, yeah, we're all so villains I, I here. Eggs we're all villains here. I think that I, I love that idea that she wanted to really show that these people are not necessarily the good guys, but they're, you know, but they are, they are some flaws, like, and some like brutal flaws. So again, not trying to tidy it up, but make it be real. And I think that's what makes the Marvel universe, I think so special is that because of that freedom you talked about, Sean, that we can do that. And I think, again, I'm blown away of the fact that what they were able to do in all these series, I love that. And so knowing that Heron is, was able to do that and accomplish that and those ideas and themes is really, really cool. And I think another part with uh, Kate Heron that that jumped out in this was her describing the different fighting styles you know, between Loki mm-hmm. and Sylvie. Well, also, I mean, she talked about in this idea of self-acceptance and identity. 
And that kind of feeds into the love story of Loki falling in love with a variant of himself, although they are different people. Loki and Sylvie are are not the same. But mm-hmm. the other but in illustrating that, not just I mean, there's plenty of ways to illustrate their differences, but then to really have attention to detail to make sure their fighting styles are different. And it's a reflection of the different lives that they've lived. And she described Tom Hiddleston and Loki's fighting style as a little more balletic. It's a little more like a dance. It's very refined because really Loki hasn't been in that many battles where he had to get his hands dirty, right? Like he uses his Mm -hmm. magic to avoid people or, or whatever he has to do or manipulates people so they do the fighting for him or whatever it may be, which doesn't mean that he's incapable. We see that he's good in a fight, but Sylvie has uh, a more raw fighting style, which we did see in the show. That's not Kate Heron like making that up as far as what she thought. That's what they executed in the show. And that's a reflection of really more of the survival path that Sylvie has been on for her entire life, for eons, for you know, we don't even know exactly how long it's been, but she says it all started before the Loki we know of for Tom Hiddleston even existed. So it's been going on for a long time, and her fighting style and even her wardrobe is a reflection of that. Like costume designer Christine Wada talking about how there's some stuff in there that's very Loki, but there's also some things that are just kind of found and grabbed in, in all of the adventures that she's had. And uh, Christine Wada, I thought, also shined in this and talking about just the intention behind some of the costume choices like Mobius, how he is, as she described an off the rack detective, like he found his clothing through the lost and found at the TVA, which I I guess there would be right. They have a lot of stuff lying around from prune timelines at the TVA, or at least Renslayer does. So maybe Mobius did get his, uh, his suit from there. I don't know. Um, But also the class system that was kind of established within the TVA, like the all black suits for the hunters, the orange underneath the armor for the Minutemen, but then also the way those uniforms are meant to do kind of what the TVA does of stripping people from of their individuality. But that individuality still kind of breaks through. She mentioned like unique markings that characters have, like these markings that were on Hunter B-15's helmet were all the different people that she had pruned, which maybe is not the most positive sounding thing, but What that shows to me, as far as just representing what's happening in the story, is even within the TVA, it shows that it kind of strips them of their individuality, but yet they try to claw some of it back, even if they don't even understand why. They're all brainwashed Mm. variants who have no idea what's going on or that they even have a past or that they even are anything other than what they were told they were created as and created to be. And yet there's still some part of them, the individual person that's probably, you know, unconscious that that still lives on underneath that brainwashing or whatever that still breaks through, even in the smallest ways to get some of that free will back. Can't get all of it back, but maybe get a little bit back to have some sort of individual identity. I thought was a really cool, uh, definitely a really cool touch. And speaking of just the intention behind other choices uh, Kazra Farhani, the production designer, was also featured in this and talked about uh, it. Uh, Hiddleston had actually pointed out the circular architecture of the TVA, just like the circular flow of time, the big loop we see of the sacred timeline in the very last episode. 
But then uh, Kazra Farhani, the production designer, was talking about the different sets and, you know, talked a lot about, of course, the there was a great segment on the Sheru set and how they had to build it to be photographical three from 360 degrees. It had to be a, basically they had to build the whole city for uh, that sequence. So it was great to see that. And that set really looked impressive. I mean, it looked impressive in the show, even behind the scenes where it's not all like dolled up and, and finished in the way that you get uh, with a fully finished product or a scene in a series look great. But then just the little ways that they were representing the little touches in there to represent the story, right? Like the take a ticket scene and that set, how the ceiling was lowered to make, you know, lower than what a normal ceiling would be by six inches, just to make it feel a little bit more oppressive and how the lights were constructed in a way to kind of look like eyeballs. Like the TVA is, is watching you and watching everyone all the time. And then the way the stanchions and the nylon rope, I go back to our thoughts on that in the first episode, and we were focusing on more just like the lack of necessity of it. Like it seems mm-hmm. so silly because there's nobody here and yet they're trying to guide this line through. Although, I mean, we see that sometimes it's probably busier, like uh, when Sylvie was around uh, when she was originally taken. But we know that we were kind of just thinking it was this just the silly touch by the TVA, but it's also representing what's happening in the story, as uh, Caswell was pointing out that you have the stanchions and the nylon rope, and that's corralling people and moving them through like cattle, which is also putting them on a path that they're not allowed to diverge from, stripping them of their free will, which is exactly what the TVA has been doing by pruning all of these alternate timelines. So that was a really interesting touch. And just to see the way all of those choices that can feel arbitrary or feel like it's not necessarily arbitrary, but done for the sake of looking cool or being a little bit funny or a little bit quirky, that yes, it is those things too, but it's still character, it's still story that's informing a lot of these choices. And I think that's why all of this stuff works so well and it's so cohesive is because everything is being guided by by story and by character, um, which I, I totally loved. And, and speaking of guided by story and guided by character was Kate Heron addressing another thing that we talked about was the idea that the the talky-talky finale of Loki mm-hmm. and how MCU movies have a, and traditionally a, a bigger action set piece in the third act. She felt like that was what they were doing with the Eliath sequence in episode five and that episode six would just be this quiet conversation. And I think that, I, I, I definitely think it worked. I mm-hmm. still would have been okay with a little more action somewhere else in episode six, but really... The conversation worked incredibly well. We'll talk about uh, a, a key component and why it worked so well with Jonathan Majors as he who remains. But that was all intentional as well, that they didn't just happen upon this conversation in the last episode, that um, it was by design the whole way to have a very different type of finale to an MCU story, uh, to have it end in, in ways that these don't typically end and of course the way they did it in episode six and how they actually executed it worked incredibly well yeah i I think that my takeaways from like the production design it was definitely way more involved and and interesting than i was anticipating to be quite honest and which is really cool but i definitely love the her her explanation heron's explanation of the fact that she didn't want to have the traditional um, you know, MCU, like big finale. And again, 
I know I don't like this to subvert just to subvert for many different reasons. I don't want to get into it, but but with this, it definitely worked. And I think it's because you still had that grand finale act, like she said. Like we we put it, you know, right before it. And the talkie talk episode was the finale, and it was a war of words. And and I think that when you reverse the two, because usually it's right, it's reversed. And when you do that, you're also setting up everything you need to. And that, and I'm not sure if that was again a purposeful thing that she wanted to do to help set up the other things. But I think that's what it does so well. And I love the fact that it maybe organically came into that way because she wanted to do that kind of uh, episode. And it, it honestly is genius because now because of that decision, I think you've done a great job, even though everyone maybe loves the fact there wasn't enough action and enough of a finale kind of feel to that episode. As far as having some kind of climatic you know, conclusion, I think to me, the com- the climatic conclusion is, is, is enough to where it, it sets up everything going forward. And it's and again, I'm not sure if that was all her idea or, or happened organically. But that right there was such a pivotal moment is going to be one of the biggest moments in the MCU, in my opinion. I mean, there's lots of different things and people have gone out there on YouTube and whatever to like explain what this could mean. And and, and but the, I think to me, you couldn't get more climatic. I think what, what they're going to be setting up with this one thing with he who remains and Jonathan Masters and everything is such a such a pivotal moment um, that I think that it is a very hugely climatic part of the MCU. And I think it's it's going to be in more of a retrospect thing. And yeah, I, I thought it was genius. And I'm really, I love the idea that she used Jaws as an influence for, um, Eliath. And again, Eliath has made a deep cut in the Marvel universe. And the fact they're using the TVA, Eliath, all these different things from the Marvel comic books that even aren't super well known and making them established things in the MCU is super, super cool. And I love the fact that she uses as Jaws. And yeah, it was, it was really cool to see that her idea to like, reverse it and at least in what way i interpreted it and then that i think is honestly only benefited the mcu definitely it it certainly has and uh even though he is a master jonathan majors is our uh, oh, he who sorry. remains but uh you know another one worth calling out uh you know another key creative uh collaborator contributor in this is uh director of photography autumn Gerald arkipop who was also featured prominently and, and rightfully so in this uh, in this episode, and the way that she was just describing. I mean, of course, going through the one shot that isn't really a one shot in Sheru, but just the the look, the lighting in the TVA, and the way she wanted to create a sense of it as if it were shot on thirty five millimeter. Like it wasn't, but it just gives it that old kind of it you know, by design, giving it a little older, more analog sort of look to reflect mm-hmm. the the analog design of everything that the TVA does mm-hmm. and how even though you have this place that has this impossible technology that they have also some of the oldest technology because I guess they feel like not all of it was broken and they might as well doesn't need to be fixed. But uh, it was great to see her featured. I do wish uh, I will before we finish up by talking about Jonathan Majors and and He Who Remains I really do wish they had found a way to um, to highlight Natalie Holt and her score, which was, I think, one of the best parts about the entire series or a lot of great parts about this entire series. But uh, it's my favorite score amongst the Marvel Studios Disney Plus series so far. Probably one of my favorite MCU scores ever, film or otherwise. And I don't know 
what the issue was. I mean, it, it might have been with stuff like this, especially anything that was made within this past year, could have been a COVID issue to not be able to get everybody together to do an interview or whatever it was. But I, I know it wouldn't have looked as polished, but uh, I would have certainly forgiven uh, a Zoom interview in order to just hear her talk a little bit about the choices that she made uh, with the score. So I, I wish that had been uh, highlighted here in this making of Loki episode. But um, one of the more interesting highlights, of course, was Jonathan Majors as He Who Remains. And just hearing Tom Hiddleston describe how, you know, Jonathan Majors is only there the last week of filming to do this one scene. And Kevin R. Wright, the co-executive producer, talking about how Jonathan Majors, I mean, it's 30 minutes of screen time, and yet he is able to accomplish this feat of embedding his character, you know, retroactively into the DNA of the entire series. And that's yeah. true. That's accurate. That's felt because of Jonathan Majors performance and how he's, uh, as they described it, flowering the next phase of the Marvel Universe. And it is crazy to think of someone being brought in and... The MCU is already massive. Before Loki, I mean, everything that we just went through with the Infinity Saga and Endgame and everything that we know is is on the way in the MCU or knew was on the way before this last episode of Loki kind of changes everything and provides an entirely new context for everything. It was already big enough. And so to be able to, it can be kind of daunting to step in and be like, you're going to be a really big deal uh, and a really big antagonist throughout multiple projects in the MCU where your presence will be felt. And the way we're going to have you start that is we're going to give you one week on for one episode of one show to establish something so exciting and, and mm -hmm. meaningful and uh, intimidating for you know the audience is, is thinking about this antagonist and the challenge that he's going to present to our heroes and to establish that kind of presence in such a small amount of time. And I mean, that's a lot to ask of any actor, period. And so right. for Jonathan Majors to step into that and just completely hit it out of the park and create a performance that immediately, I mean, everybody's been talking about for the past week plus uh, this performance and being so excited about what he just did in Loki and what he's going to do in future projects and then just hearing Jonathan Majors talk about it and talk about some of the things that we were, uh, a lot of us, and when I say we, I don't just mean you and I, a lot of people mm -hmm. have been expecting that what we saw from He Who Remains isn't necessarily what we're going to see from Kang. In fact, Jonathan Majors himself, who's going to play the part so he should know, expects it to be very different. He even talked about the evolution of Kang and how the Kang the Conqueror, whatever the main one is that we're going to see, if there is a main one, would have no choice but to be in opposition or be different from He Who Remains. Because if you think about it, He Who Remains won a multiversal war. So if you want to win the next one, you don't want to be like the guy who won the previous one. Like You want to be different and you want to be better and how maybe there will be some of that that informs this next iteration of Kang that we're going to see. But everything that they that they showed with Jonathan Majors and just him on set and his presence in, in that and him just being so embedded in that world and uh, and so ready to go with it, I, I thought was just awesome. And it was very evident why things turned out so well uh, with his performance. 
No, absolutely. And I, I keep going back to the fact is so inspired and genius of using the character of he who remains and putting him as a uh, variant of, of Kang and using that to springboard into a greater like introduction to what we're about to get. And it's so, so genius. And I think Jonathan, Ma- uh, I can't my master. Sorry. That's a different actor. Uh, Jonathan majors. He, I love the fact that he went out of his way in the interview. And again, he doesn't know what's going to be put in the assembled thing. He's just talking, you know, just, you know, at, you know, yeah. he's responding to questions. So it's not like he has no idea what's going to be put in and put in and not. So when he's the fact that he said it and they put it in, I thought it was very smart. And also the, it's very telling the fact that he says that this is just one iteration and it kind of mm-hmm. informs the character, but it, it is an example of what could be, but not what, you know, you'll see this little bits of this in different characters, but it's not going to be the same, you know, thing that I'll, that I'll do. He was like, even kind of saying it like very flippantly, like, Oh yeah. Like this is just like one iteration that I wanted to kind of have fun with and, and, and have these different influences in. And then now you're going to see a different informed character. And I love that, that he understands the differences of all these different characters. Cause we all know there's not just Kang. There's other versions of Kang that are going to come out. Like, you know, we have Mortis and things like that, which we'll get to later. But that's the thing that's so cool is that he has now this this actor is going to play so many different versions of this character mm-hmm. and variations that he has to make it he has to make them unique. So he, the fact that he went out of his way to explain that by this he who remains is only one aspect of that character is genius. And I love the fact that it, it, or genius the fact that what they've done with it and how they use it to introduce it. And then I love the fact that he emphasizes. This is not going to be the same version that's going to be going coming down the line. So people who are worried, don't worry. This is there's there's going to be some massive overhauls in as far as his performances, uh, how he interprets the Kang and everybody. So I'm I yeah I can't wait to see what he does. Yeah, they were not shy at all. I mean, it wasn't just Jonathan Majors. I mean, Stephen Broussard, right. Kevin Wright, uh, Tom Hiddleston were all talking about how he who remains being a variant of Kang, and as they were showing comic book artwork of Kang and everything just really Mm -hmm. doing a lot to kind of show the to place the emphasis on just the level of antagonist that that Kang is going to be within the Mm -hmm. Marvel Cinematic Universe or multiverse going forward and even Hiddleston talking about how this series with Loki having the opportunity to change the MCU in in such a big way have an opportunity to change it forever and that's definitely the way that it feels uh, since we've seen that finale and as we're thinking about what we might see next. But before we move on from this making of Loki episode, how cool was it for them to go back to Loki talking about, or Tom Hiddleston, he is Loki, uh, Tom Hiddleston talking about, you know, getting to wear the horns for the first time and like going back to him on set and in photo sessions and stuff like that from the very first Thor film and him talking about his journey with this character over the past uh, 11 years since, I mean, 10 years for us on screen, 11 years for him playing the character uh, in 2010 when they made the first Thor film. But what an amazing journey for Tom Hiddleston as this character. And it almost feels like this retrospective, like it's over and it's totally not because Loki is still there and uh, will return, of course, in season two and and perhaps elsewhere as uh, as has been discussed and, and speculated about, and we'll probably continue some of that as we go on here. Mm-hmm. But bringing things kind of full circle with, you know, time being a circle uh, with that um, for Tom Hiddleston and his entire journey as his character to this point, 
was really uh, was really a, a great part of this, and I thought they did such a good job of balancing that in this making of uh, Loki yeah. episode as well of giving the right amount of attention to everything that happened in the series minus the score um, and and everybody who you know put so much time and effort and care into this series, but then also Tom Hiddleston and his own very personal journey uh, with Loki that helped him be such a great creative force behind this series, uh, not just as an actor, which was already more than enough, but now with this series as an executive producer. And now I'm like, yeah, let's, let's get Tom Hiddleston involved. I'm like, let's uh, Tom Hiddleston, the yeah. producer, I, I like. So I'm sure we'll get to certainly more of that in Loki season two. But maybe, I don't know. I, I don't know what Tom Hiddleston's producer aspirations may be, um, but he's pretty good at that job. So yeah, uh, for so sure. Well done, Tom. And uh, I really, not that he listens, Um <laughs> But yeah, this was a great uh, Marvel Studios Assembled episode for the making of Loki. I'm so happy that we get this series. And I think the the whole reason something like this exists is because of Disney Plus, not just because they're highlighting Disney Plus series, but this is where you can have this sort of additional content that allows us as fans to get into the minds of the creators right. who work so hard to bring us these stories that we love and, and also allow some of them to be showcased when they 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 don't normally receive that sort of attention you know you don't normally get your dps and your production designers featured on press junkets and stuff like that so for them to have an opportunity to show just how much uh, they put into their work um, that made this that helped make the series so special uh, is one of the real treats of these making of series for uh, these making of episodes for marvel studios assembled so yes we really liked the episode we talked before we recorded that this was supposed to be a really quick uh, segment uh, highlighting I Marvel Studios Assembled. And, uh, you know, I, but, you know, hey, look, uh, 40 or so minutes for us is pretty quick. Um, it's true. It's true. And uh, based on the current or the run times we've had lately on the podcast, we still have plenty of time. So yes. uh, we are going to talk about the multiverse and we're going to talk about what's next. And some of that conversation is going to be guided by your questions, but let's just start by picking up where Marvel Studios Assembled left off with He Who Remains or now Kang in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and what we expect from this character. I don't even really know what to expect from this character and, and exactly how all of it is going to work because it looks like when we see the end of season uh, season one, Loki in this other version of the TVA, no more timekeeper statues. We have what looks like a Kang statue, very much looks like a Kang costume mm -hmm. that uh, Jonathan Majors in statue form is wearing. So is this like the Kang that we're going to have? Like, I don't think we're going to, I think we will see multiple iterations of Kang, but I feel like at some point we have to center on like one, one. like main yeah. one is like this is Kang Prime. This is the this is the big one. The, this is the the one we have to fear the most, right? This is the one that is the smartest, the most powerful, all of those things. And maybe that's the one we're dealing with in Loki season two slash Ant Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. But one dominant version of Kang, let's say, uh, has to emerge at some point. And I, I think that's the one that we will mainly focus on in the MCU. But that, of course, doesn't mean that we won't see other iterations as well. 
at different points along the timeline or the timelines now in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it's tough to know right now exactly what to expect. But what I, I do think they've done a really good job of establishing, though, and it was something that was going to be very difficult in terms of having an antagonist that could span multiple projects like Thanos did in the Infinity Saga. And I still don't know that Kang is necessarily Thanos as far or, or intended to be a new Thanos or anything like that, but another very, very big bad uh, within the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the way they've established that in this series with so much of the legwork being done in this uh, in this season finale of Loki. Right. I mean, it's a very impressive feat, but it, it certainly teases uh, so much more. And, and I mean, I already loved the hell out of He Who Remains, but to see yeah. this next version of Kang that we're going to get, um, we know he's going to be very different. Jonathan Majors has told us so. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on an, how long it's going to take before we settle into mm. that dominant version of Kang. Like, are we going to have to go through other iterations and graduate to mm. this, you know, Kang Prime or whatever it is, <laughs> Kang, Kang the Ultimate yeah. Conqueror, whatever we're going to call yeah. him? Um, yeah. I'm curious if you think how many iterations we might go through before we get to this guy or or so, it or do we already have him like this is the guy that we see in right. loki season or at the end of loki season one so i think the, the latter i think that the primary there's only one primary king now i say king very specifically so uh, I, this is not a, a shameless plug this is legit like so on my youtube page the the comic binge we reviewed um two series mainly one and we've already reviewed one of these series. I think it's really essential for Kang reading. And I'm not going to spoil the story, but Avengers Forever, which I think is a fun, fantastic, it's very dense, as, as the other people, the panelists on the uh, the channel had explained. So I was curious what people thought. And I recommended you to read it too, Sean. And maybe read it for the show, because it is, I think, to be essential reading for Kang the Conqueror and I think where you could go with the character, especially when I, I reread it, you know, recently, but reading before, I always loved the story because it's entrenched into the 616 Marvel universe that these movies are based out of all the history of the Avengers. And, and you learn a lot about things you don't really wouldn't know by watching the movies or just reading very casually from the comic books. It's, it's a, almost like a history of, of lesson, essentially, like our document. The thing about Kang I think is that, yes, you can have there is a fun I think there'll be fun like play things with like a. Uh, or they'll play with the idea of the Council of Kings and, and having multiple versions of like of the same like exact character potentially. Like, like that idea could be like touched on in a very like fun way. But like you said, Sean, I think there's gonna be one king. But the one thing that that comic book kind of brings into the for you know the, the forefront that I think they're gonna go into is Immortus and the fact that Kang and Immortus are the same person on different timelines and they hate each other because they are they don't want to be what that other person is and i think that that's what we're probably going to get that different iterations of king you might again you might have a little a, a different idea of like a couple things here or there but i think there's gonna be two major versions and again might be a couple other random things but i don't want to spoil that stuff that's that's all fun stuff to you know, read comics or and watching the movies but in mortis and king I think that's going to be what you're going to get. And I think that that's one thing that he touched upon in Loki, the season finale is that there's different, you know, you don't have, there's different versions of me. I'm, I'm protecting everyone from, you know, these, these deadlier versions. And you have one where Mortis thinks that he's, 
you know, I'm, I'm preserving the timeline and you have Kang who he wants to conquer the timeline. So you have two different iterations. And I think that's, what's going to play off of. And I think Immortus thinks of him himself as like a hero, but he's not, he's, it's, it's a selfish, uh, the selfish mentality that the he who remains kind of had, he's kind of like he who remains, but a little bit more serious. I probably would say. And then Kang is like full on, I'm a warrior. I'm going to destroy everything. And I'm going to, I'm going to conquer everything. That's why they call him King the Conqueror. I'm going to conquer these timelines. That's what I think you're going to, you're almost going to be brought into like these Avengers are going to be kind of caught in the middle. And mm. that's what my guess is going to be is that I think Immortus is going to say, or whatever you want, whatever they'll do. I'm sure, I'm sure they'll bring Immortus and I'm pretty well, confident. Immortus and Kang emerging as like the two opposing exactly. leaders in the multiversal war. Exactly. And so I think what's going to happen is Kang wants to destroy the Avengers for his timeline to, to maintain. And Immortus is going to be looked at as the good guy because he's going to say, Avengers, I'm going to, I'm going to befriend you. I'm going to help you. And that's the kind of Avengers forever is kind of about, and it's really interesting. And I, I'm not going to spoil it. We've talked about it on the podcast. I told Alex the, from comic book historians, don't spoil it, but he kind of said it in the show, but read the comic. Cause there's, there's actually Sean, this is why you need to read the book. It's pretty rad. Immortus actually has big ties to vision and Wanda big ties. Mm. And I was like, Huh. And it, it, it gets really into the weeds of like vision and like in the, in the 616 universe. And it does get confusing. Trust me, the book's a little it's dense. But there's two issues in that. I think if you don't want to read the whole series, I recommend at least reading these two issues, issue eight and nine. They are literally like the best Wikipedia pages you can read about Immortus and King. And I was blown away of some of the things that Immortus is tied to with Wanda and Vision. I went, whoa, wait a minute. And after a while, if you watch, if you think about WandaVision, and you think about this, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. You'll be like, oh, that's actually kind of rad. I think Wa I think Wanda's going to play a bigger part, even bigger part with Kang than I thought, well, at least with Immortus. So this, I'll just tease that right there. Read the books. Read those read those eight and nine, Avengers Forever. They're all Marvel Unlimited. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll just end there. That I think that Immortus and Kang, it's going to be Kang kind of conquering, and then Immortus is going to come in, and they're going to be like, who do we trust? And so... There's gonna be a lot of play on that. So that's where I think we're gonna get Immortus and Kang, maybe another side character. I'll save that for a later time. But yeah, I think that's our two main iterations. Yeah, I think it has to, in general, I mean, I think you kind of have to focus in on specific iterations of characters in order to be able to invest in them as an audience. Like we, we can't mm -hmm. get that invested in Kang if we're just constantly presented with an entirely different version. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's we need to have one version or, you know, a couple if it's Kang and Immortus that we focus in on and we have a chance to invest in as characters and, and in their story. So I, I agree that it, it will boil down to one, maybe two uh, iterations with, again, one Kang, one Immortus. I certainly like that as a possibility. And I also kind of like the idea of Jonathan Majors playing against himself because I think he could. Um, so that would be oh, pretty, yeah. that would be really awesome to see. Um, so definitely an interesting thing. And and I'm curious, though, about like just how much Kang is going to pop up in these different projects, because I don't think he's just going to be like Thanos sitting in a chair or grabbing a glove in mid credit scenes all the time. I mean, I think you can keep that idea alive through some mid to post credit scenes, but it also would be interesting to see a villain who spans multiple projects having a more active role in each of those individual projects. Although, you know, Thanos was still an important figure 
Oh, for sure. In Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, so he wasn't just always, uh, I mean, he didn't get up in that movie, but he was still uh, he was still very influential in the events of that film, of, of that story. And so maybe he's we'll driving see, the whole story. Yeah. So right? maybe we'll see some of that with uh, with Kang. Um, I do want to get into some of our, our questions here about Kang. So there was one question from This Means Podcast. If we're going to see a different version of Kang or different variant in every post credit scene going forward. Uh, no, I, I don't think we would see that. I mean, it's a fun idea, but yeah, I don't think that we will see a different version of Kang. And I, I don't think Kang will take over every MCU tag going forward. I agree. Uh, because yeah, that's that's just too much. And not every story is going to deal with Kang, with and, Kang or yeah. the multiverse. You know, like right. I, it's I'd hate to rain on the parade of the multiverse when it just started, but not every character and not every story lends itself to that. Like when we're starting out with Miss Marvel later this year, that's Kamala Khan living life in Jersey City. Um, I, I don't right, think right. we're going to have her dealing with, and, and maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I don't think it really serves that story to have her dealing Agreed. with multiverse stuff. And by the way, we would get tired of that very quickly if every story was merging into different timelines or having to worry about different timelines every single time out, then we will be bored of it before we even get to Loki season two. So I, I think it's going, everything is going to move. It's going to be measured. It's going to be paced in just the right way. I think as far as Marvel studios is concerned to build this up so that that way we don't get tired of it, but we still build our anticipation to some big payoff or, or culmination of all this stuff. Uh, another question from uh, Seth, is it is time still circular in all of the multiverse and is that how Kang will return? I don't know what shape time is at this point. I mean, no, yes, seriously. we see this big loop around you know the asteroid and the citadel at the end of time in Loki season six, but now it's branched out and the branches have branches. I Is it more of like a sphere now? I, I don't know. Um, and as far as how Kang returns, well, it does seem like, you know, there, the, it still does seem like there is some circular component to it, right? That things always kind of come back around because otherwise, you know, if you were having, you know, uh, if you were having a situation where, uh, it was only moving forward and only propelling forward, well, if he who remains, mastered the timeline he won the multiversal war and then he dies well all the other kangs have already been pruned so there's you know so we only move forward from that point and no kang can re-emerge so yes I, I think there is still this some sort of looping flow of time within this that allows things to come back and, and of course you know go all the way back to the beginning of time and all the way to the end of time so yeah there is still some part of that at work um, as far as the, as far as allowing right. Kang to be re, you know reincarnation baby as he who remains put it <laughs> well I, and I think that and you brought up a great point Sean you have to have one primary king right that's like that shows like this guy means business and I think what we're probably going to get at some point whether it be a post credit scene or I to be honest I, I wouldn't be surprised it's quantum mania I think you're going to have a scene where it's going to be the the king the conqueror the person we're, we're the pri, pr, king prime if you will there's going to be like an opening thing where it's going to be him destroying a version of himself. And he, this Kang version will have destroyed pretty much all of his other versions 
except for one, probably Immortus. But let's, but it'll be like a scene of him killing himself because like he mm. wants to prune all of the other kings. He wants to conquer all the timelines, right? So that I think that's what we're gonna get. I think that's what we're the primary focus will be, and and that's where I think all that focus for him will be in in the MCU is like we'll know and 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 we'll know and and put our our hatred or our fear of this character because he will have already dominated all the other kings by this point. I think that's why you see the king statue in the TVA. So that's where I would kind of go with that. But he can't conquer everything because yeah, he has, he's got to have something in his way, and that's why I think Immortus and I think all that with the Avengers will be will play that part of it. Yeah, well, and there's other people who are going to stand in his way. I mean, Loki is going to have something to say about it. Right. Sylvie yeah, yeah, yeah. is going to have uh, something to say about it. Uh, another question we got from at KSP99, will we see Pharaoh Ramatut in Moon Knight? No. I don't think so either. I, I know Moon Knight obviously deals with... Egyptian, yeah. Um, it, it, of course, I mean, a lot of it is set in Egypt and mythology set from Egypt and, and everything. So I, I understand where... Maybe I understand where the connection is there, but I don't think so because how would that really inform mm. the story of Moon Knight? It, it doesn't. And I think the only thing maybe is if you want to throw it out as an Easter egg. Exactly. People, maybe. Mm. But yeah. I also think if you're going to place that Easter egg, it would be better placed in Eternals. But mm. um, we'll talk about Eternals in just a second. I want to Next, talk about the very next thing that we're going to get in the MCU, which is not Eternals and, and not even Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. It's what if. What mm-hmm. if now, I mean, when it's so interesting to think of what if in this new light after getting Loki episode six, because so much of what if has been basically what the comic books were, which is you can tell any story you want because it doesn't actually count in the timeline. And that's why you can do these crazy character pairings and events and, and deaths and whatever you want to do in all of this and, and recontextualizing characters and completely reimagining them, whatever it is, you get to do that in What If because it does, you don't have to worry about the overall continuity. That was part of the exer- the creative exercise for What If in Marvel Comics. And we thought of What If from Marvel Studios in a very similar context of we're just having fun with different iterations of these characters and not necessarily worrying about how it informs or impacts the larger MCU. And I think to some extent that is still preserved, but the idea that these things aren't really happening, I think is gone. They are really happening. They're just happening on different timelines because now we have infinite timelines. So the whole reason what if can exist in in a way that counts, even if it's not counting in like the main prime MCU timeline, that we follow, it's still part of it. And it's all still part mm-hmm. of the multiverse and all these different timelines. So um, it's, you know, it's it's on the scoreboard. Maybe not the main one that we're paying the most attention to, but these stories are on there. And I think that's part of what makes them more interesting. And it's also what I think will allow those stories to connect, which was very evident in the, in the trailer that a lot of the talk around this series was it, it being more of an anthology in nature, but... It feels like these episodes, there is a, a creative, uh, you know, story through line throughout these various uh, episodes. And I think a huge part of that, and the, I mean, the timing of it, of Loki being out before mm-hmm. what if, I mean, that is the way it was designed. Um, and thankfully, even with various delays that they were able to to have Loki out first. But yeah, what if I, I think is even more exciting and I, I can invest even more in that story 
because of the way Loki has allowed what if to, to count in a way that we hadn't expected. And again, I don't know if that's purposeful. It, it seems like it is, Sean. And I, I'm with you. These stories do count. Every multiverse, and I think I'll get into this later on in some of the questions and the things we talk about. I think every multiverse will matter. I think that's kind of the point of what I think Loki was. And the, the idea of like someone controlling everything is just it's it's almost, it's it is hard to think about that way and how that no one has free will. So all those things are playing in the idea of that because one person had this, I, you know, only prune all these different timelines. There's only one sacred timeline. What if represents now the freedom of everything being a possibility? And like you said, Sean, whether it doesn't matter if these stories are not in the prime universe, if you will, or the 616 MCU universe, they also happen and matter. And I think they're, I think that we're going to see evidence, evidence of that through Dr. Strange and through Spider-Man. And I think this is like the first kind of foray into it. And it's, again, it's a cheap kind of, and I say cheap, not in a cheap way, but because it's animation, it's not as expensive as live action. So you go into animation and you have a lot more freedom and to kind of do different things with like an Iron Man and all these different characters we're going to see. And it's exciting. I think that we're going to see the fruits of that, some of that stuff into these other films. But we're going to for us diehards, we're going to get that first scene in the, those ideas of different iterations of characters and what could happen in what if that will eventually be paid off into the films. I definitely feel that way. So I'm super I can't wait for stuff. I'm stoked for what if I think what if this is well, always one of my favorite comics to buy as a kid. So this is kind of like me and my eight-year-old self being like, I can't believe we're making a what if. It's, I mean, I'm stoked. Yeah, I'm so excited about just the concept of what if, because yes, those comic books were were great reading those as a kid. But also, I mean, Marvel Studios going into animation is very exciting yes. because animation was definitely a key point of entry for me in my Marvel fandom. I've told the stories of you know, being into the 1982 Incredible Hulk series. Although, I mean, I was born after it was done, but going back and rewatching as many episodes as I could get my hands on, on VHS tapes. It was, uh, it was such a huge part of animation, such a huge part of my Marvel fandom, especially as a kid and, and growing up and, yeah. and getting me, allowing me to engage with these characters in, in whatever places I could. And growing up when we did, you relied on animation because you weren't getting live action Marvel stories. You had comic books and you had the occasional animated series, most of which did not last very long. So, you know, you were grasping at whatever you could. So to have Marvel Studios now with that, with the What If series and having that be something that's really meaningful and, and having it be part of this exciting new multiverse in the MCU is just really great. And I cannot wait to start watching the series on August 11th and start talking about it in the, the days that will follow. So the next project that I want to look at, because we got a question about it, is Eternals on November 5th. So I know that we have Shang-Chi ahead of that. Uh, we don't have, I, I don't expect Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings to really get that into the multiverse. Maybe I'll be wrong, but again, I don't think every single series and movie is going to delve into that material. And I don't know that Miss Marvel or Hawkeye will necessarily deal with that because you're talking about more grounded heroes. But when you look at Eternals, you're talking about, you're, you're in very cosmic territory and you're mm -hmm. talking about celestials that have been around pretty much forever you're talking about the eternals that have been around for pretty much all of human existence on earth so in thinking about these characters that's also where you know maybe there's an opportunity for kang or ramatut to appear but i'll just i'll cut to the question because i'm about to answer it without asking it 
Uh, it was Riguez two three five who asked, "Do you think Kang will be referenced during Eternals at all?" I think if Kang is referenced in Eternals, it would be a Rama Tut Easter egg yeah. because mm. these characters span all of human existence. They've been around for thousands of years. And so they would have been around potentially when Kang as Rama Tut, just a recap for anyone who maybe doesn't know, that was the first iteration of Kang that was ever in Marvel comic books was a guy from the 31st century who went back in time and, and ruled as a Pharaoh Rama Tut in ancient Egypt. So is that maybe the version? Will we see that version in the MCU at all? Possibly, we we really yeah. could. And, and Eternals would be, if you were going to just use that as a quick Easter egg, Eternals would be as good of a place to put that as as any, I think anyway. So I could see that being a part of it. But even if it's not a Kang reference, even if it's not a, um, even if it doesn't have anything to do with, uh, if it doesn't have anything to do with Rama Tut, there might be other possibilities, but it's also important to keep in mind, Eternals was supposed to come out way before Loki. Yeah. Eternals was made and it was supposed to come out in November, originally supposed to come out November of last year, whereas Loki was always supposed to be spring 2021. So I don't think, I mean, it's Marvel and they can always add stuff into the mix, which is why I would say if you're going to get anything Kang or multiverse within Eternals, I would say it's more likely to appear as a, in a mid or post credit scene than mm. it is in the main story. I mean, as big and cosmic as the Eternals is, not everything big and cosmic necessarily has to go all the way to the level of, uh, of the multiverse. Because I know there would be that question, right, of, well, what would cause the Eternals to get involved? Like, if they weren't involved during Endgame and Infinity War... Would they be involved now because of the multiverse? And I don't really think that would be it because we already knew that the Eternals, it was something else that had to get them involved. And that was all before we saw Loki. And that was all before they had even made Loki and they had already made Eternals. So the timeline, that timeline, our real life timeline just doesn't match up, I think, for Eternals to deal with that yeah. much material in the multiverse. But a Ramatut Easter egg or a mid or post credit scene is is maybe where you would see something. I think that's a I think that's the best bet. I think again an Easter egg for Ramatut kind of make you know, Jonathan Majors as like he's in character as Ramatut something like that teased maybe for a split second and for us who saw Loki you might be like oh my god but that could be a post uh, or a, an idea that was made after the fact Sean maybe at some mm -hmm. point but. I think you're right. I think a post credit scene may be the, the most likeliest uh, of, of things. So Eternals is one of those. I, I'm actually getting more excited for that, that movie as it gets closer. And I'm very intrigued how they handle everything, because there's lots of interesting questions that the more, a lot of the fans have been like, why this? Why this? You know, what does this mean? So I'm they've got a lot of explaining to do with the Eternals. And I think they'll do a good job. And I'm excited how they're going to do it. The cast is ridiculous. So. But yeah, I'm, I don't think Kang will play a big part in this necessarily. No, I don't think so either. I mean, because if you go back to the way when they made this, then they would have been spoiling Loki if they yeah. put a big Kang reference in uh, in Eternals. I mean, maybe a, a Rama Tut thing could have been questionable as an Easter egg, so maybe something like that would be in there. But again, I, I just don't. I, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily expect anything, but yeah, the the possibilities are there. So. For uh, the next thing that we will see is Spider-Man No Way Home on the big screen December 17th of this year. 
And this is really what we're where we're starting to look at, at least in live action terms. We know the multiverse implications of something like what if on the animated front, but for live action, Spider-Man No Way Home is where we expect to be our, our next big leap into the multiverse. And I think by now everybody's heard the various rumors and reports. Toby Maguire, Andrew Garfield, Willem Dafoe. And, and of course, Alfred Molina, who played Otto Octavius or Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man 2, he's already said, like, he's already admitted that he's in the movie. So despite rumors, never mind rumors and reports, he's already saying he's there. And that, of course, is a, an iteration of Dr. Octopus that's in a different timeline that isn't supposed to connect to the MCU, unless they're pulling a thing where, like, Alfred Molina is playing an Otto Octavius who isn't the one from Spider-Man 2, just looks like the one from Spider-Man 2, like there are Loki variants that still look like Tom Hiddleston. But I don't think that's it. I think he is the one from Spider-Man 2 because his death wasn't like definitive enough in Spider-Man 2. There was a way for him to come back and, and potentially survive that with the way his death was presented in that. And certainly we're we're looking at this idea of multiple Spider-Men, so Tom Holland perhaps interacting with Tobey Maguire, with Andrew Garfield, and opening up all of these possibilities, and we know that Benedict Cumberbatch is going to be appearing in the film as Doctor Strange before he goes off into the multiverse of madness in his own film, and so as far as the, as far as all of the things that we would look at for clues of dealing with the multiverse, they're all over the place for Spider-Man No Way Home, And that may give us, I think what we don't yet have for the multiverse is any sort of set of rules of exactly how it's going to work. We don't really have that. And I wonder if Spider-Man No Way Home will start to establish it. I don't think it will totally write the book on what the multiverse is and how it's going to work in the MCU, because there still has to be some sort of system that guides it in some way just for us to be able to follow it as an audience and we're not just living in complete random storytelling, uh, you know, that we're, where we're always on the brink of something random happening in a story. I think there will be some sort of system internal logic to it. Spider-Man no way home gives an opportunity to define that a little bit, but I don't need Stephen strange and Peter Parker figuring it all out in the very first movie. So discovering what's happening and maybe figuring out, you know, going through an experience with the multiverse. And of course, with, I think what Peter Parker may deal with, if you're going with the title of the movie is once you get into the multiverse, maybe it's hard to find your way back. Mm. Um, I don't really know, but certainly this creates all kinds of opportunities because when we look at not only Spider-Man interacting with previous Spider-Men, when you're merging timelines of previous Marvel, you know, live action Marvel movies and you're having them or not necessarily merging them, but having them intersect with the MCU, that creates possibilities for Spider-Man. But it also creates possibilities for a lot of other characters mm-hmm. that we expect to see in the MCU. But we'll save that for later in the show. Yeah, Spider-Man No Way Home is such an enigma for me because... Again, I avoid spoilers like crazy for this stuff, so I have no idea. Besides Alfred Molina, you know, basically admitting that he's in the movie, which is awesome. I, I think for me, Spider-Man No Way Home could be the first four way into like almost like the, the precursor to the uh, multiverse of madness in a sense of what you could expect. Because I think there's definitely always rumors of him taking on different iterations of his characters and rumors of Toby and Andrew Garfield coming in. I, I think that you're right. 
the MCU has to establish some kind of ground rules with it. And I think, and we all know they will, and I'm confident that it'll be pretty easy because I always look at um, the Infinity Gauntlet as the best so the best way to, to have faith in, in what they'll do because the Infinity Gauntlet in the comics is like just ridiculous. It's like just, yeah, it, you're basically like the the, the leader of everything of, of time and, and space and whatever. What the MCU did with the Infinity Gauntlet and the and Infinity Gems a lot made a lot more sense and a lot more, it, it made it a lot, they definitely depowered it, but in the best way possible. I think they'll do the same thing with the timelines. They'll make it very simple. Like, and I'm not sure how that works, but they've done a great job already with Loki. I definitely believe that they'll do that with um, with Doctor Strange and Spider-Man. And like you said, you don't need those two characters to sit down, Sean, and explain like, well, how the multiverse works. I think it'll be pretty self-explanatory from for us as a, an audience. And I think Spider-Man will just be more of a, kind of like a, a, an excuse to get these different Spider-Man characters in, in the movie mm-hmm. and the rules of it won't be the, won't be the, I think the emph- won't, won't be touched on really. I think we'll get more of that in multiverse of madness, but I think that'll be the, the basis of the movie. Essentially. I think it'll be a little bit different. We'll get into that in a second, but I think that no way home is more of an excuse to get them all together uh, more than anything. And the rules won't be, won't be as heavy handed. I think we'll get into Dr. Strange. I agree. I, I think you you first have to discover it. So while I'm yeah. saying there needs to be a set of rules, that's why I'm also saying you don't have to you don't have to write the the entire rule book in Spider-Man No Way Home because that you don't want to introduce this massive concept and then immediately make it very small. You don't want to do that either. So you want to mm-hmm. you want to allow it to start to have some sort of internal logic that we can kind of grasp as an audience. But then you also want to allow there to be a path for discovery and and surprises as we move forward. And so I think just the Spider-Man No Way Home will kind of serve as, I think, the prime MCU, you know, the MCU 616 Earth. It will allow just the existence of the multiverse to be discovered by MCU Earth 616, where Peter Parker and or Doctor Strange figure out, wait a minute, like there's something going on here that we are intersecting with different timelines, parallel timelines, dimensions, whatever you want to call it. And there's something, although I think timelines and dimensions are probably di- are different, but there's something that's going on here. What is it? And then they they start that process and, and give us some, an initial set of rules that can, of course, be expanded on or completely broken and, and redefined as, as we learn more. And then that will lead us into... Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which comes out March 25th, 2022. And I love that Spider-Man No Way Home and Doctor Strange, I mean, I know this wasn't the way it was originally supposed to be. Doctor Strange was supposed to already have been out by now in the original Sacred Timeline here. It was supposed to be out May 7th of this year. But now the way, and it was supposed to be out actually before Spider-Man No Way Home, which, so some sequence of events would have changed with those movies, but of course, they got to rewrite all of uh, a lot of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness because production on it was delayed for so long with the pandemic. So now it's March 25th of 2022, just a few months after Spider-Man No Way Home. And I'm glad that you know, Spider-Man No Way Home is going to tee things up for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness in the way that you know WandaVision has in some respects and, and Loki, of course, has in some respects. But I love that once we see Spider-Man No Way Home, it won't be that long of a wait until Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And of course, this is where I think we 
we really kicked the doors open to the multiverse. I mean, I know Loki kind of already did that by setting up all these other timelines, but as far as us really exploring it, I mean, it's in the name, Multiverse of Madness. And so I, I think No Way Home will cover a lot of ground. Multiverse of Madness has an opportunity to cover even more ground and even perhaps maybe explore different dimensions and different timelines and how those things intersect or, or interact. And of course, that's without even getting into Wanda being a part of the story. And I know that uh, The Hollywood Reporter even mentioned Loki being in this story, and they kind of they just mentioned it offhanded, like he's expected to be in the story without clarifying why they expect Loki to be in the story. There's been no reporting that Tom Hiddleston is in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. I don't remember anybody saying that he was in London at the time, although, I mean, I think he lives around there, but um, I don't remember anybody saying that he was spotted near set or anything when they were filming Multiverse of Madness. The only thing we've ever had is way back when Kevin Feige mentioned in an interview that Loki would connect to Multiverse of Madness, but that connection already exists just with Loki opening up the multiverse. So I don't know if we... I don't know that I really expect to see Loki in this, but, um, and I don't know, and, and THR didn't report, like, they weren't reporting it as if, like, sources were telling them. They were saying expected, but not explaining why. Uh, I, I don't really know, but as far as the overall concept of the multiverse, yeah. I mean, I, I think Doctor Strange, maybe maybe stuff happens in Spider-Man No Way Home, and Doctor Strange becomes aware of it and, and realizes that, oh, yeah, what what I thought I was discovering and, and maybe trying to explain or discover with Peter Parker, it's this whole other thing. And that leads Doctor Strange onto a completely different adventure that, of course, ultimately uh, intersects with Wanda Maximoff and perhaps her trying to find her kids, whose voices she heard at the very end in the, the post credit scene for WandaVision. But I, I think what you also see here with the multiverse is you're, you're going to tell different types of stories. Like, I, I don't think it's just... Spider-Man No Way Home is, look how wild and wacky the multiverse is. And then Doctor Strange is, look how wild and wacky the multiverse is. I think it's going to be more refined than that, where you really see different specific applications of the types of stories you can tell with the multiverse. So tonally, I think you're going to see something very, very different from Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and perhaps showing just how scary the multiverse can be. And, and, And that's the thing, too. You think about, you know, we talked about Mephisto, right? And what, almost like he was, let's be real, there was some kind of teases a little bit for Mephisto. Like, I always think of the one where um, Agatha says, you know, responding to the devils in the details, and she says that's not all where he is, you know. So I definitely feel like, I, I look at think of Mephisto and Nightmare. Do these characters over are there different iterations of these characters? I don't think so. I think there's only one Mephisto and there's only one like nightmare. And you gotta wonder if, you know, what if any of those characters might play in Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness. I definitely want I really want Nightmare to show up in, in Multiverse of Madness, but I don't know. It's I have no idea what that premise is right now. Like what again, if Wanda's I don't think Wanda's gonna be the, the antagonist. I don't think so, but but again, you just don't know. I have no idea. So I definitely feel that the multiverse, like you said, Sean, will will be shown as in where the darkness and where this could go and, and where what that all could mean. And with Sam Raimi as the director and his horror background, it's going to be really interesting to see what aspects they do with it. Because you can get really crazy with, with right. Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness. And you could go – I mean it's funny. 
you brought up a great point how Spider-Man's like the positive, like light fun version. And you right. have like the really crazy darker side you could do with multiverse of madness. Will will Doctor Strange be meaning the cancer verse? I mean, I have no idea. Like that's the thing. I and the cancer verse is like these evil iterations of the characters that are like literally evil incarnate, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, will he run into those Avengers? I mean, I have there's so many different things you could do with it. Will he run into an evil version of himself? I mean, I have no idea where this is going to go. But I think you bring up a great point that there is a very scary aspect of the multiverse that you could go into. So. That's where, and again, how Wanda fits into all that, I don't know. And this is where, and honestly, this is where I think you could see Immortus show up. I think Immortus could show up as like this kind of like I'm a good guy, I'm you know, but not really be. So we'll see. I don't know, but I, I definitely feel that we're gonna get a lot more of a scary thing. And my guess would be it's either gonna be like an evil version of Doctor Strange himself, or something like kind of the Cancerverse idea, Nightmare is the other idea of a nightmare kind of opening up these, these evil like um, universes and bringing them over to kind of mess with things and, and establishing the fact that there, there is like, there is something over these timelines Sean, that there's, there's only one version of them, like a Mephisto, like a nightmare, those kinds of characters that you could now establish that like, yeah, there are millions of versions of, of Dr. Strange that we've already established in Endgame or infinity war and whatever. But now there's actually even scarier versions of like there's actually these, these evil beings, whatever these in- entities that are now only one of them. What does that mean for the Marvel universe and like the Midnight Suns, if you will? So, yeah. lots of interesting ideas you could in- in do with Multiverse of Madness. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting thought though, because that was a question from Gabe of what is the difference between alternate timelines and other dimensions like the Dark mm-hmm. Dimension or perhaps you know a Hell-like dimension hell. for Mephisto. And I guess that would be a key distinction if you say that these are these dimensions exist outside of time and Mm -hmm. therefore there's only one across all of the infinite timelines. I kind of like that idea. I mean, certainly there is you could if they want to define it that way in the MCU that every timeline has its own set of all these alternate dimensions. But I don't know that I love that idea quite as much because I do like the idea of there being some things about the multiverse that are central and the Mm -hmm. different dimensions because they are, I mean, the dark dimension, they even say it's a place beyond time is how it's described Mm -hmm. to us in the first Doctor Strange movie. So if it's beyond time, then it doesn't need to be impacted by any one timeline or belong to any Mm -hmm. one timeline. So and I do think it's great to have a way to distinguish that to establish there is a difference between these things. And one key difference, one way of establishing a key difference is, yeah, dimensions, there's only one of for every for all the timelines together, as opposed to each having its own uh, each infinite yep. timeline, having its own complete set of uh, mm-hmm. of various dimensions. Another question that we got from it's been Papa Cats all along uh, Loki was originally set to premiere after Doctor Strange 2. How much do you think was rewritten? Well, we don't actually know that Loki was originally set to premiere after Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Loki was originally announced for spring of 2021. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness was announced for May 7th of 2021. So there is the potential that you know spring would have started because we don't know that Loki still... It wasn't originally announced as June 2021 so maybe the idea was loki would have premiered in march and it would have we would have seen the last episode within a week or two of doctor strange hitting theaters like maybe the handoff was supposed to be 
very, very, uh, you know, maybe the handoff was supposed to be very direct and like very immediate, like Loki ends. Now here's Doctor Strange. The ones that we know for sure changed order were uh, Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. As far as how things were rewritten, well, one thing we do know for sure is that Michael Waldron, who was the head writer on Loki, got hired to rewrite Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness and then initially was only going to have a couple months and then gained several more months because production was delayed. So we know that Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness was rewritten extensively, but whether that was in response to Loki, I mean, I'm sure because we're talking about the same person with Michael Waldron, that his script for Multiverse of Madness was informed by what he knew was going to happen on Loki. But that also points to just how directly those two projects could be connected because they are coming from the brain of the same writer, not that he's the only creative individual responsible for it, but you do have um, you know, that common denominator in addition to all the other ones within Marvel Studios, like Kevin Feige, uh, chief among them, um, but I don't know if it was changed specifically because of the order, because we don't know for sure that Loki would not have, uh, if everything had gone the way it was originally planned, it is possible that Loki still would have been out and uh, ended ahead of Doctor Strange. Uh, mm-hmm. Another question from K Brown 79 Do you, th- uh, do you guys think the crossing of the threshold was when Wanda became the Scarlet Witch? I've seen this theory, I've seen the video, and. I I tend to think maybe, but maybe not. Like sometimes a coincidence is still just sure. a coincidence. And for anybody who hasn't seen what this is and, and doesn't know where this question might be coming from, is you know somebody you know synced up the the finales of WandaVision and Loki, and at the same point in each episode in each of the finales. When Wanda is becoming the Scarlet Witch in the the WandaVision finale, at that same timestamp or very close to it is when he who remains hears that sound and says, you know, we've crossed the threshold. And that leads to, of course, you know, time for a decision to be made. I am going to go out on a limb here and say that it's just a coincidence. I know that's not the most exciting version of it, but here's why I think it's a coincidence, because it's just not how these things would commonly be made. There's no good reason to have the timestamps of these two different episodes match, because in order to do that, that means you are cutting these episodes, or at least maybe you say WandaVision was already done, and so you're Mm -hmm. just worried about the Loki finale. So now as you're editing the Loki finale, you are cutting it in such a way to make sure that your timestamp for crossing the threshold matches the WandaVision finale timestamp. And there's no reason that, I mean, and that's that's an effort to make sure that that happens. And it's not the way you would typically make and edit a show. And that effort, I think, is ultimately meaningless. There, there's, nothing, there's nothing that you gain from that effort when the timestamps match. And here's why. If you want the audience to understand something in a story and say that these two events are occurring simultaneously, you don't rely on timestamps because you know what? Most of the audience is never going to see that. So you have to establish things happening, happening simultaneously in story, which means eventually you will have to go back and you will have to show 
that when Wanda became the Scarlet Witch and when the threshold was crossed in the Loki finale, you're still going to have to show in story that those two things happened at the same time, at which point it doesn't matter that the timestamps matched. You could just say these things happened at the same time and we all go, oh, okay, great. That's cool. You don't need to cut it that way. So while I do think there are it sure it's a possibility I don't lean towards thinking it's any more likely because the timestamps match, because that's just not the way you would normally uh, edit a show, because it is a lot of effort that is wasted effort, because it doesn't prevent you from having the same in-story obligations to show the audience that you are inevitably going to have anyway. So I I know that's me raining on a parade again, but and, and maybe I'll be proven wrong on that. And if I am... I will admit just that, but I I don't think so um, as far as just based on the timestamp theory. I also think that going back to that moment of crossing the threshold, did we really cross the threshold at that moment? Or was that he who remains forcing a decision? Mm. You know, know, I, I think there's something to be said for because it's the only thing that created a sense of urgency. If there was nothing going on with the threshold being crossed or anything like that, then Loki and Sylvie get to sit there at the end of time, having an infinite amount of time to have their conversation about what's going to happen. That threshold being crossed, whether that was a real thing or not, and perhaps it wasn't, it created a ticking clock. And we know that he who remains was not necessarily, um, you know, he even said his methods could be deceptive. So perhaps that was part of the deceptive methods um, was pretending like there was a sense of urgency that perhaps there wasn't at all. I'm going to say this. I think you're right, Sean. It probably is a coincidence. Um, is it possible they said as long as it gets close, we're good, and it just have and it just happened to be even closer than they anticipated as like a fun like if you want to get super deep down into it, it's possible. And the only reason why I say that honestly is because of knowing the again the comic books and reading the stuff that I read this last week or reread last week, I was like, oh, oh, okay, it actually makes a lot of sense because Wanda actually is pretty important with it comes to this this honestly as far as immortus goes and immortus is an iteration of kang and he who remains so if they are going that route and it could be all coincidence right I, it probably is mm. but when you you could retroactively do that and and let's be real the comic books are great about using past things to connect different things because when you have a shared universe you can do that you can retroactively do things i wouldn't be shocked if they even said they say, yeah, you know what? That is going to end up being a thing, especially if you again the thing in the comics. I'm not saying it's this big moment or reveal, but it is interesting that Mortis does have ties to the the Wanda Wanda's character and what she represents. All things, all things that were all brought up in her series, by the way, like heavily emphasized. We went over in detail. So the fact that when even on the on my show, the comic bin show. Um, the, my friend Chris brought that whole thing up when I was bringing up the comic book. He said, yeah, would you see the thing today about the whole matching of the, of the, the things? I went, whoa, that kind of blew my mind even more. So I think there's, 
there probably is maybe a little credence to it. Is it that, like you said, like precise? Probably not. Like you said, you don't, it'd be really hard and crazy to, to kind of structure your whole finale over like one, <laughs> one timestamp essentially. Right. But at the same time, I wouldn't be shocked if there is connection somewhere on, along the way. And they, just, and they, it, it, I, here's what I think. I think it very well could be get it as close as possible. And then that's all they said. They don't have, there's no no specific time. Just have it as close as possible, and we'll we'll go from there. Just as a, as a fun thing, and then it could have happened. But I don't think it was dependent on that. But it probably wasn't. But you never know. But I definitely think it's going to be. I think it'll be end up being a, a big moment for sure. Yeah, and I should say that just because I think the timestamp is a coincidence doesn't mean that Wanda becoming Scarlet Witch does isn't the crossing the threshold moment, right? I mean, the timestamp could be coincidental, but the plot point could still ultimately remain and ultimately be true. And then, sure, if Kevin Feige comes out and says, yeah, we actually edit it just so that those things would match up and somebody on the Internet would notice. uh, Sure. Fine. Um, But it is possible, though. I, I mean, I guess it begs the question of why didn't the TVA show up? But I guess if you could say if that's happening at the same time as the moment mm-hmm. in the Citadel, that the TVA wasn't really uh, was certainly distracted at the moment and, and, rens- and they had no leadership in, with everything after the mm-hmm. timekeepers were gone. Sure. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> um, but also not everything has to be quite that exactly. connected all the time. And, yeah. and not everything always is that connected all the time. So um, I, I don't know. I, I lean toward maybe that not being the crossing of the threshold, but that still doesn't mean that Wanda doesn't have a key role to play in this. We know she does because there she right. is in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. So we don't really know when we're going to get Loki season two. So I'm going to set that to the side because obviously we know Loki season two is going to address this territory, but I'm going to skip from March of 2022 to February 17th, 2023, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. I know I'm skipping over some other things like Thor, Love and Thunder. I know it's going to be big and I know it's going to be crazy. I don't really know that it's going to be multiverse unless Mm. we're going to say the Jane Foster Thor is from a different timeline and not the Jane that Thor knew. Possible. Possible, but we're more invested in the Jane Foster. I know some of us are. I know some of us aren't, but we're more invested in the Jane Foster that we know. And Thor is more invested in the Jane Foster that he knows. So I would still rather she be the one who is the mighty Thor in Thor Love and Thunder. Um, But yeah, I'll acknowledge that possibility and others, other multiverse implications in that movie. But really, I think we're looking at Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, because it's already been reported. We already know Jonathan Majors is going to be Kang in that movie. So that certainly means that whatever is being established now is going to follow through into that story. And I, I think that also illustrates the point that like, Spider-Man in No Way Home, I don't think he's chasing Kang. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, I don't necessarily think he's chasing Kang. They might not even know anything about Kang and might not even know that Kang is behind any of this or has a part to play in any of this, they might not discover that because there's other antagonists that could pop up in other multiverse stories. So it it doesn't have to mean, just because you're telling a multiverse story doesn't mean Kang is the primary antagonist of that story, but we hear that he is for Ant-Man and the Wasp's Quantumania. So that certainly points to a, a very direct connection with this Loki series 
But that's where I also just have the question of is Loki season two going to be out before this? There's time for Loki. I don't know how far along they are in writing Loki season two. Like if they start shooting Loki season two this year, even if it's late this year, that still provides them with enough time for Loki season two to premiere and play out entirely before we get to Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. But if we get into early next year and we still don't hear about Loki going into production, then it's or Loki season two going into production, then yeah, we're probably going to see Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania first, which means we'll have some sort of showdown with Ant-Man and the Wasp and Kang, but maybe they don't get an opportunity to resolve it. I mean, this whole thing started in Loki, so maybe Loki season two actually gets to finish it. And that would be a very interesting possibility as far as the way the Marvel Studios Disney Plus series get to count is what if the finale with Kang is in Loki season two? I don't think so. Um, But that would certainly elevate the profile of the series, although I think Loki has already done plenty of that by being by changing the MCU the way it has by opening up the multiverse in the first place. But this is where it's it's tough for me to see exactly how this connects, because I know what's now personal in a battle between Loki and Sylvie and Kang. I don't know what's personal in a battle between Scott Lang, Hope Van Dyne, Janet Van Dyne, Hank Pym. I don't see what's personal for them in a battle between in a, in a battle with Kang. And it almost makes me wonder if maybe Ant-Man and or the Wasp might pop up in something else, like maybe No Way Home or Multiverse of Madness, something to give them some sort of stakes with Kang going into Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, or maybe that's maybe all the information we need on that is going to be housed within that film, which would be fine and certainly allow people who only watch that movie and haven't watched anything else, although let's be real, people who watch Ant-Man movies are watching everything else in the MCU. Uh, so I, I feel like they could, I, I'm very curious with that. Like, are, are we not going to establish the stakes for Ant-Man and the Wasp until this movie, or are we going to maybe find out what connects them to Kang earlier on, uh, earlier than that? I don't think Kang is going to be the primary bad of quantum mania. I think it's going to be somewhere between guardians of the galaxy volume one, and maybe a little bit more prominent because if I think, again, I'm just going, again, the whole idea of only one, like, Mephisto and one nightmare in this, you know, one kind of time outside of time, does the quantum realm, does that exist? Is there multiple quantum realms, or is it what binds everything together? And that's kind of what I, I that's what I envision anyway. That's why I interpret it from from Endgame, that there's different timelines, but they use the quantum realm to, to travel. What if Kang is using henchmen and again there's there's different ideas of what he could be using as henchmen for him to be trying to conquer the quantum realm to control access through time and i think that's where we've heard rumors of different characters show up i think you could get maybe the new yellow jacket potentially showing up as returning in different iterations of characters that that's why you almost have the idea of quantum mania right because they're going to be fighting in the quantum realm because how Maybe that's why Janet Van Dyne knows who King is potentially because she was in the quantum realm for so right. long. And so I think there's, and we don't, we haven't seen her since, you know, Ant-Man and the Wasp. So there's, that's to me, and they were, they, they obviously were dusted, um, you know, after everything and then and Scott came back. So I think there's, and, she, and we all know she's been in there forever, right? Because it was only five minutes for him in the quantum realm 
and she was in there for how long? And <laughs> so right. she she might have been she might have met Kang and survived Kang. And so I need to rewatch Ant Man and the Wasp again because you know it's been, I've only seen it once, so I need to rewatch it. Um, I, I think that's where I think we're gonna get the tied into is where she's gonna know who this Kang character is potentially, or maybe he who remains or something like that. And they're gonna they're gonna start seeing something. You know, and they're going to be realizing we have to go in back in the quantum realm and protect it from this, you know, being. And I think whoever is going to be in charge of King's army, it's not just going to be King in the forefront. It could be. I, I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I think it's going to be more like a Thanos, like from behind the scenes. He's instructing right. him. You, you see from the, but it's not going to be him directly. So, but I think it's going to be a war in quantum, the quantum realm more than anything. That's why it's going to be quantum mania because it's not going to be boots on the ground like war it's going to be floating in midair doing crazy you know quantum mania it's going to be kind of more insane what's going on that's the kind of way i interpret that anyway so could be wrong but that's where i'm that's where i'm kind of running with yeah i think janet van dyne is probably the good that's the best choice there for the connection is to show that there mm-hmm. already is something i mean we know that she I mean, look at the way she was geared up in Ant-Man and exactly, the Wasp. Like, right? She's been in it, right? She's been in the mix, and so there's been challenges. There's been stuff to deal with. There's been antagonists, and, and maybe Kang or a variant of Kang was one of them. And Because somebody even asked at uh, Fagerberg, asked, uh, we must be closer to revealing the identity of that tiny quantum city, right? And there is a tiny little mm-hmm. quantum realm city that's in the background in Ant-Man and the Wasp that isn't really addressed or highlighted, and maybe it is in Quantum Mania, and maybe Kang lives there, or some version of Kang uh, or variant lives there, because that is sort of beyond time, right? Is in, mm-hmm. at the very core of the quantum realm. I mean, I don't know that there is a center or core of the quantum realm, but if there is, maybe that's where that city is. So could Jan it be Chronopolis? It could be. I mean, because they. Yeah, because mm-hmm. they didn't actually call where, we, you know, we were talking about Chronopolis in Loki, but they mm-hmm. called it the Citadel at the end of time. So exactly. Chronopolis gets to be, you know, still exist and be revealed. And maybe it is that city in the quantum realm. And and yeah, Janet Van Dyne, if you don't need if you don't want to have Scott or Hope or anybody else pop up in No Way Home or Multiverse of Madness uh, or Loki season two, if Ant-Man and the Wasp comes out after Loki season two, then yeah, the idea of uh, giving Janet Van Dyne that history makes a lot of sense. So that's definitely a good call on on your part. So that's a good receipt to file away. That that one may you may end up Will being do. able to cash in on that one. Um, <laughs> but speaking of Loki season two, let's let's get into that because look, you you've established Kang at or what we believe to be Kang or some variant or whatever at the end of this Loki season one launched this whole multiversal party slash war uh, party for us as fans to enjoy watching. It kicked that mm-hmm. whole thing off for us. So it just stands to reason that Loki season two would still be dealing with that. And that's where I, I think it gets really interesting for a character like Kang. And that's where, I mean, the biggest piece of information I really want to know now is do we get to see Loki season two before or after Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania? Because that has the potential to change a lot of different things as far as what we would expect to see. Because what I don't think is going to happen is I don't think that Loki season two is going to be a completely different thing than Loki season one. I mean, it will be different as far as the story they'll tell. But what I mean is, 
they're going to pick up where they left off from Loki season one. Like, I don't think it's going to be this thing where all of the problems with Kang are resolved between Spider-Man No Way Home and Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. So then we go to Loki season two after Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, and we're dealing with a completely different thing. Like, what we teased as big problems at the end of season one have since been resolved, and now we're on to a completely different story. I'd be very surprised if that was the outcome, because I still think Loki season two needs to deal with the issues at the end of season one. So... If Loki season two is after Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, then that would mean Kang is still around and still a big problem in the MCU. And, and Loki will have to be dealing with that. And I think there are still some very interesting questions, some of which were yeah, posed by uh, our listeners here that we'll get into. But it's, I'm very curious to see just how, how Loki is going to be able to resolve these challenges with Kang and Sylvie as well. But will they have to do so in a way that keeps Kang out there and active and still being a threat for other projects like Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania if it comes out after Loki Season 2? Or even if uh, Loki Season 2 is after Quantumania, what if Fantastic Four also needs to deal with Kang? So how can Mm. Loki Season 2 resolve its own issues but still keep Kang out there? for the rest of the MCU and to continue to be a challenge for other characters in the MCU, I think is, is one of the more interesting questions about this next season of the show. I, I personally think Kang is going to be evident throughout. I think he's a new Thanos. I think with, with when you had the Immortus aspect with him and all of that, I think he is definitely going to be the big bad orchestrating things from a lot of behind the scenes. I think the quantum realm is makes sense. I think Loki season two will probably, again, well, I think Jonathan Majors will be in that series, but kind of like what he ended up being in uh, the first season, kind of a a small part, maybe one episode, something like that. I definitely think that what Loki will be doing is trying to figure out and understand and how to corral the TVA and understand what's going on. And the, the fact that they do work for an, an evil person, I think Renslayer will play a big part of that, obviously. And, you know, her character being tied to Kang and everything, it just, to me, we're going to see more and more of, of the dictatorship of Kang and the idea that the TVA will exist, but then realize we'll be led by Mobius at that point. It'll be kind of like the transition to getting Mobius back into like charge of everything and, the, and then using the, maybe using the multiverse to help fend off Kang from the TVA. That's what I think what Loki season two will be about essentially is fending off whatever, whoever Kang has in charge whether it be King himself or somebody else, it'll be them fending that person off to get kind of like a Renslayer, but actually them actually taking full control of the multiverse at that point saying in order for us to, you know, the the multiverse needs to be allow itself to branch off into whatever it needs to be. And that's again, the idea of free will and, and letting things happen naturally the way they're supposed to be. That's kind of what, or along those lines, that's what I think that Loki season two will be about. And Mobius and, and Loki will be at the forefront of that. Well, and it's also, I mean, when you look at what these characters want, it's not like the only thing they want is to defeat Kang, right? Like Loki and Sylvie want to be together, finding a way back to each other. Um, Mm -hmm. Mobius wants to ride a jet ski, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) amongst other things like Mobius. And also, like, we have to resolve what's going on with Mobius and and Hunter B-15 and like, well, I, I... 
I'm about to, I'm on the verge of answering questions that came in. So I'll, I'll stop myself and I'll, I'll cut to the question. So, cause we have a lot of questions about Loki in season two, uh, mm-hmm. or well, a handful. Uh, so one was from, uh, Vonte, the new one. Uh, so what do you think Sylvie's role will be moving forward? Does she now live in the Citadel? Well, living in the Citadel, hmm. that's an interesting question because I, I think hmm. the I think the director Kate Heron mentioned in an interview somewhere that you know the idea, and I think Sophia DiMartino actually the of course who played uh, Sylvie mentioned this as well, like the idea of Sylvie maybe regretting what she did because what she did certainly unleashed the multiverse and unleashed a lot of other really bad possibilities and. We'll go, but you can go back to our season finale spoiler review and where we talk about the the ethical dilemma that was in front of them. You know, the idea of allowing the TVA and or leading the TVA to continue doing what it was doing, or perhaps uh, ending that and inviting something worse into the equation. And and I don't know when I go when I think about Sylvie and and her regret, I don't really think it's I don't think it's so much about the decision she made as much as it is why she made it, you know, that she, cause mm-hmm. she could have thought about it and said, look, what the TVA is doing is, is wrong. And our only chance at something better is to end this. It might mean that we end up in a worse spot than we are now, but where we are now is unacceptable. So we have to try something else. If that was the rationale behind Sylvie's decision, and that was exclusively the rationale behind Sylvie's decision, then I don't think she would regret it as much. I think the reason that she would regret this decision is because she wasn't motivated by entirely by that logic of this is an unacceptable system, so we have to try something else. I, I think it was more along the lines of Sylvie, you know, of course, wanting her own revenge, that it was more of an emotional decision at the time um, that maybe she had allowed he who remains to kind of get to her to the point where she was so angry that she was just going to kill him without necessarily thinking about whether or not that was the best move. So I, I I think Sylvie will definitely have some of that regret, but as far as then what, what does she do about it? Because that's what our heroes do. If they make a mistake, it's how do they find their way back and and how do they Mm -hmm. fix it or at least fix as much as they possibly can. I think that is kind of Sylvie's role is that she has to be, she has to try and, repair the damage that she believes she's done but what form does that take and you know living in the citadel is an option like maybe she decides maybe we're going to find out that sylvie is running the tva i mean maybe that's the misdirect maybe Mm. maybe loki's not dealing with kang maybe the the timeline that loki has gone back to where he's seeing a, a kang statue I think Kang is still real and happening in the MCU, but maybe that's not who Loki is dealing with, right? I mean, mm-hmm. what if the Kang statue that's that Loki is seeing is no more real than the, you know, space lizards, the timekeepers were in the original version of the TVA that we saw? That maybe Sylvie decided after killing he who remains and seeing the damage that she had done that she was going to try and run things and fix things from the citadel but didn't want Loki looking for her or didn't, or rather didn't want Loki trying to stop her. So distracted Loki by putting Kang in front of him as a target. Uh, meanwhile, she's the one who's doing some of this stuff. That's certainly possible. And it still allows Kang and, and his own path to be a problem. But I still lean, even though I'm throwing out that theory, like I'm, I'm, I have doubts about that theory that I'm 
throwing out myself, so I'm, I'm discrediting myself right here. But I have, it's a possibility, but I have doubts about that because I still feel like Kang needs to be our main antagonist here. So I, I think really what Sylvie's role is, whether it's at the Citadel or maybe she's going into the timeline or timelines now, trying to find a way to minimize it, or maybe she's going to go hunting for Kangs. Maybe that's what she's going to do. Mm. Um, like maybe she's, you know, you know, Sylvie Kang hunter. I don't know. <laughs> like maybe that's what she has to do. Cause she knows that all these variants are, are the ones who are going to be a problem. Like I don't agree with pruning timelines. If you say the reason timelines had to be pruned is because of variants of he who remains slash Kang. Well, then these are the guys that need to be pruned. No one, no one and no, and nothing else, just these guys. And maybe that's what Sylvie tries to do. Um, but that's, I have these wide ranging theories, which is just evident that I, I have no idea what they're going to do with her. I'm with you. I, I like the idea of her being the tower, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Another question comes in from Rob. Do you think the new timeline Loki ended on is a branch reality or the new sacred timeline? We talked mm. about this a little bit, I, I think in our finale spoiler review, but that is it's a very interesting question and one that of course we don't know the answer to. I mean, I, it would seem like, cause the TVA was formed after he who remains, it was formed after he won the multiversal war yeah. and established a sacred timeline. So that would suggest that, you know, if there's a TVA that Loki is, is into right now, that this variant Kang has all that a multiversal war has already happened. This version of Kang has won, and and that's it. And that's why there's a TVA, and we are actually back to a sacred timeline. That's a very sound theory based on the way things have worked so far, but that doesn't mean, though, that now there might be multiple versions of the TVA, and, and maybe there are different variants of Kang who have their own version of the TVA, and... I I lean that direction maybe more because it's wishful thinking because uh, the reason for that for me is I still want the original sacred timeline to exist somewhere. And the reason I want that, well, there are multiple reasons I want that, but one of the biggest ones as it relates specifically to this series is I still want the Hunter B-15 and Mobius that we saw at the end of season one talking about how there's no going back now and watching, of course, the, the the birth of the multiverse or rebirth of the multiverse, I still want them to be around. I don't just want Mobius and Hunter B-15 who don't recognize Loki and have to be filled in on everything and start over. That's not my favorite idea. That's not my favorite possibility. Like I kind of like the idea that there's a Mobius and Hunter B-15 in their original timeline still working with this situation and still figuring out what it means with the multiverse. And meanwhile, Loki was sent to another timeline. And how did he end up in a different timeline when he just went through a time door with a temp pad that Sylvie pushed him through? Well, perhaps because it was an accident because there wasn't supposed to be multiple timelines for him to go to. There was only supposed to be one. And it turned out there were multiple options and he ended up in this one. So it's, and it's also harder for me to believe that we're back to one sacred timeline because Aren't we dealing with the multiverse? Aren't we dealing with other timelines in No Way Home? Um, unless that's, I don't know, maybe that's what it is. I mean, I 
this is how I'm going in all these different time circles and loops in these theories. And this is how like my head is completely spun on this because maybe Loki season two happens after Ant-Man of the Quasp, Ant-Man of the Quasp, Ant-Man of the Wasp, Quantum Mania. Maybe it happens after that film. And maybe, maybe Kang wins in Ant-Man of the Wasp, Quantum Mania. Maybe that's the one where he wins and he establishes a new sacred timeline, but that would close the loop on the multiverse very, very quickly, unless you're going to open it, close it, open it back up again. So I lean toward branched timelines, alternate timelines, infinite timelines, as opposed to one One, sacred timeline. But whichever one uh, Kang is in may be the dominant timeline because he is the, you know, the dominant form of Kang, whichever uh, the the most powerful variant is we deal with. And there's, as far as we know, there's only one time variance authority. So whatever they could exist outside of time. Right. So yeah, that's, and that's kind of where I, I, I leave it as I think, again, I think King will, I think this King, the conqueror wants multiple timelines right. so we can conquer them. So that's he can true. be, and so I can con- So he, that's why I said the idea of killing a, a King right in the beginning of one of these movies or shows to show that yeah. he is one of the only ones left. And that's why he's, but he wants them all. So he can be like, Yes, I conquered. I have, I, unlike other kings or other iterations right. of myself, I have conquered millions of billions of timelines. Yeah, well, that's a good point because if you go back to what Jonathan Major said, if you think about this next variant of Kang, this dominant variant that we're going to see potentially anyway, wanting to be very different and be in opposition to He Who Remains, well, that's not just personality; that could also be strategy. Like mm-hmm. this guy did the thing that you thought I would, that everybody would think I would do that. I would just try to eliminate every other timeline and, you know, rule things from the Citadel. Well, that wasn't a great existence for he who remains, right? That's kind of why exactly. he's as crazy as he is at the end. There is he's, he's gone a bit mad sitting there for all of time all by himself. Um, despite, you know, miss minutes, but to, to go through that experience, I mean, you could certainly say that this other variant of Kang might be aware of that eventuality for a variant of himself going on to becoming he who remains and, and how that all went down. That's definitely, you know, it, it's certainly possible for him to have looked at that and said, well, I'll do something even better. I will have a time variance authority, but it won't be doing all the same things that the other time variance authority did. And it's not necessarily going to be pruning every single timeline. It's going to be harnessing power from those other timelines, and that's going to allow me to rule and, and be become even more powerful. Maybe that's what it is. Um, I don't know. But I, I still hope there's actually another version of the TVA. I, I understand they, they, of course, exist outside of time, so there could still only be one version despite infinite timelines. But I still want Mob- the Mobius and Hunter B-15 that we followed in this season I still want them to be part of it and and maybe they can be awake maybe they are still there and maybe they can be awakened from the versions we see uh at at the very end but I I kind of want to pick up their story not just reintroduce them to the new story for you know for the purposes of season 2 um and one of the reasons I want that is because uh what Phil asked will we ever see Mobius ride his damn jet ski I mean I think that has to happen yeah, I, I think that will totally happen. That, that's his end game. Absolutely. There's there's no way that doesn't happen. Um, In Need of Coffee asked about uh, Sylvie sending Loki back to another timeline. Um, That was I think I already talked about that a, a bit that even if 
There are multiple timelines. The reason he didn't go back to the original one is really more of an accident. I don't think, uh, I, I think Sylvie, when she shoved him through the time door, just assumed he would go back to the sacred timeline. I don't think she had any idea or any knowledge of exactly where he was going to end up. So as we continue on, we have some other possibilities, things that we know, uh, characters that we know are popping up in the MCU, and we know for sure the Fantastic Four are on the way. And we don't have a release date for the film. We know John Watts is directing. We don't have a cast for the film. So we don't know very much about this at all. And there's no guarantee that this movie deals with Kang the Conqueror at all. But the theories out there, we talked about it last week, the idea that maybe Fantastic Four would be the culmination of this phase and not necessarily an Avengers movie, which I think would be an interesting and and different approach for the MCU to not necessarily go off of the same kind of Avengers cycle that we're used to um, and would certainly elevate Fantastic Four to treat that as the culmination of a phase as opposed to just, you know, uh, a solo slash smaller ensemble film. I do like that idea. And of course, Kang's origins via Rama Tut trace back to Fantastic Four prior to his first appearance in an Avengers comic book. So all of the you know comic book history and, and everything else, and, and certainly Nathaniel Richards being Kang, you know, the, a descendant of Reed Richards, all of that points to connections between Kang and the Fantastic Four and the emergence of this character, the the multiverse, which of course Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four deal with quite frequently, all of that points to uh, Kang popping up in Fantastic Four, or at least it invites that possibility. So until we start hearing uh, more concrete information about Fantastic Four, then yes, Kang being in that movie is the direction I'm leaning. I, I I'm with you too. I I, I think I, I got a crazy idea. I don't think this is where they could go. Or where they will go, but I think it's a very good possibility, Sean, that the Fantastic Four very well could be placed from a different universe into into the um, the, this MCU timeline. So what I mean is, is that they could be fighting, you know, a iteration of a character goes into the MCU that we all know, and they find themselves, oh my, where are we? We're in this you know world we don't we are not aware of, and they're they're kind of that is their new home. I thought about that because. If you want to, you could establish that way. You can kind of skip the origin of them a little bit mm-hmm. and give them uh, a little bit more of like kind of like this this new agency within this universe. And like, who are these Avengers? Like the Avengers we had are are gone or whatever. You can get it. They can kind of almost be that conduit into like this uh, multiverse a little bit and kind of the other way around. Again, I'm not saying that that's what I want or I think they will do that, but I definitely feel that it's a possibility, especially with you bringing the King aspect and Dr. Doom and things like that. So there, there is a possibility there. I think you could kind of that way you can, you can not do an or, whole origin story of like, you know, how do they exist in the in, this, in the MCU? It's like, oh, they're actually it'd be kind of interesting, a different take that they became these these world travelers, the dimension travelers, if you will. Right. right. All of a sudden they wind up in a totally different reality they're stuck in. And, you know, or whatever. It's an interesting idea. I'm not saying it's 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 a it's a, you know, 100 percent on the money, but it's interesting. So I definitely feel that that could be I don't I, because of, of King's potential. And again, I say this because I've been doing some research about this already. His potential ties with being a, a descendant of Nathaniel Richards or a different version. I don't know. But either way, the I don't think Reed, at least right now, he's not Reed Richards dad. 
And but there also has been teases of him being con uh, connected with Doctor Doom as far as a descendant, a descendant of Doctor Doom or a descendant of Nathaniel Richards or both. It gets kind of weird. So you kind of think where Doctor Doom could fit into this as well. I don't know. And I think you, if you want to get heavy handed, you could get you could make Doctor Doom be a descendant of Kang and go heavy that route and maybe have them be in opposition of each other. Because that is, again, a theme of um, of Kang, of different versions and not want to top themselves and things like that. But I don't know. I, I definitely feel that I don't think the Fantastic Four themselves will be directly tied with Kang. But you could if you go uh, um, what I was explaining. So I don't know. I, I, I just want a, a true blue Fantastic Four story and that teases Doom, that doesn't give me Doom outright. I think Doom needs his own movie. I've said this for a long time. And I think that... That's what they need to do. A whole Doom or thing. Disney or Plus series, or yeah, or yes, exactly. Thank you. And so, with that, you could go really go ham on it and go full on Mole Man monsters underneath, you know, the New York, which would be ridiculously and ridiculous and awesome. So, we'll see. With with, with Shane Chu, I know there's not Fing Fing Foom necessarily, but there is the ideas of a dragon, you know, monsters kind of a thing. We could have that in the MCU, and I think that's where they need to go. They need to go a different route with it. And I don't think the time travels – you can't go too heavy on time travel because that kind of – that kills the, the the diversity or the uh, – the what's the other word I'm looking for? The, the uh, just Everything is so different in the MCU. You want everything to be the same thing, and you mm -hmm. need to give it some kind of authenticity that's not d just the same you know multiverse aspect. I totally agree. And I think it's important to establish these different things and really give all of these characters unique ways to interact with these different types of concepts within the MCU. And and I certainly like the idea of the MCU or rather the MCU's Fantastic Four dealing with multiverse stuff more so than just time travel. And, and I never really liked the idea of the Fantastic Four just traveling through time from like the 1960s into the present day, although Ugh. maybe through the multiverse, we still end up with a Fantastic Four from the 1960s. But I still I favor I want a contemporary Fantastic yeah. Four. I, I don't need straight from the 60s FF. I just don't um, I because I, I, I don't want them. I mean, if they because even if they are from the 60s, I'll put it this way. They don't need to act like they're from the 60s. I, I don't need the. What's this going on? Like, because if they've been through the multiverse and got lost in the multiverse and found their way back or however they get established in the MCU, then obviously they're savvy enough. I mean, they have a multiverse worth of experience that goes beyond wherever they were when they originally left in you know the 1960s. But I still even the the Earth based science of the MCU at that point in time doesn't really sync up with that. I mean, although you could just say that the technology existed, just nobody knew it because the Fantastic Four took it with them. But I, I don't know. That still seems like a lot of legwork. But having the multiverse be some part of the introduction of the Fantastic Four, I could certainly see that happening just based on the... I don't think we're... I don't think the MCU is bound to that necessarily, but the possibility certainly exists based on what's on the table. And also, when we talk about the multiverse and Fantastic Four, the implications of that... Or actually, there was one more point that you hit on that I I did want to mention something about. And, you know, the idea of uh, other villains in this, or rather just the idea of Dr. Doom not being the villain. That's been my biggest thing with the first MCU Fantastic Four film is as much as I love Dr. Doom, I don't need him to be the, the first antagonist for the Fantastic Four. And because that's already been done, granted it's been done poorly, but because it's already been done a couple times or a few times, if we go back to the nineties, I don't need it to happen again 
just for the sake of the MCU version. I want the MCU version of Doctor Doom, but they Marvel can take their time and develop that character. Like you said, with his own movie, I would even say I, I almost favor a Doom Disney Plus series more so than a movie to get even more Ugh, time to so develop rad. Victor Von Doom and the whole mythology around Latveria and all of that. I, I feel like there's more than two hours there. I just do. And, and so Disney Plus series, and plus budget-wise, I think you can achieve it on the Disney Plus series level, and you don't necessarily yeah. have to go up to the movie scale, and it would just give us the benefit of more time with that character, and then have him just be unleashed on the big screen in something else, I think would be a really cool idea. But, you know, whether it's Kang or Mole Man or somebody else um, being part of uh, being the antagonist for Fantastic Four, I I like that idea more than Doctor Doom. Let them deal with Doctor Doom eventually as the rest Mm -hmm. of the MCU. Certainly the Earth-based heroes on the MCU are are destined to deal with uh, at some point. But when we talk about multiverse implications... We are not just talking about the Fantastic Four. We are also potentially talking about mutants because that's been one of the questions and you know a point of speculation since the Disney Fox deal and integrating mutants into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And would the time travel with Endgame have something to do with that? It doesn't really have to anymore, although, I mean, I guess you can connect it back to that point because of Loki in uh, Avengers Endgame in New York 2012 getting away and kind of starting this whole process. But the idea of, of mutants happening in the MCU, I mean, we've we've known that they were coming, and, and now there's certainly an avenue to where mutants could have existed for a very long time, and we just haven't seen them because they're part of another timeline, and a timeline that perhaps is merging with ours or intersecting in some way. And it just leads to a question that we have from Kirby's mom. Surely this is how we will get to see mutants. Any thoughts on when they will show up? I don't know for sure that this is how we will see mutants, but it seems likely Um, as far as Mm -hmm. when they will show up. We already know that they're making Deadpool three. So that is one possibility, but there's an earlier possibility. I mean, Eternals could establish mutants in the prime MCU six, one, six timeline. There's a way for that to happen. Although I I think that would be more planting a seed as opposed to full on establishing it. So it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be tied to the multiverse, but that seems like, I don't know, the most efficient way to get from A to B or X as it as it may be. I just, as far as when they will show up, what I like about the multiverse is I, I hope it means that, you know, kind of like you talked about before, like you, you keep what you like and you don't necessarily have to keep the things you don't like. Like not mm-hmm. everything from every timeline has to come over and interact with the 616 timeline. So if that's Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool, great. If it is Patrick Stewart's Charles Xavier, also great, although I don't mind the idea of a new Xavier, um, mm-hmm. but Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, if they can get him to change his mind about being done after Logan, uh, certainly that creates a, a possibility. And, and and it is the most exciting version of it. Like I, I have full faith that Marvel Studios could cast a new Wolverine and do a really great job with that. But I also feel like it would be much, much better if we ended up seeing Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. And that would certainly be the biggest deal to the audience because that's the version they love is Hugh Jackman's mm-hmm. Wolverine. You're not asking yeah. them to accept a new version. Here you have an avenue to say to uh, a very easy avenue. I mean, easy. The multiverse is incredibly complex, but <laughs> yeah. you do have an avenue to get Hugh Jackman's Wolverine in there 
in a way that that fits within you know the the pseudoscience of of the MCU. So why not do it if you can get him to sign on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the mutants. Is, that's a whole series of episodes we could do, Sean. I mean, I don't think you use the multiverse to introduce mutants. I I just don't. I could be wrong. I I could be wrong. But I think there's either going to be, I hate to say it, I kind of feel there's going to be a a little bit of a cheat to introduce him. And I think going back to uh, the the old Infinity comic uh, where you introduced uh, Thane, uh, Thanos' son, Mm -hmm. uh, and there was that Terrigen bomb and everyone became Inhumans, I I really do think they were going towards – the idea of any humans and mutants like becoming one meaning like they're almost one and the same. And they kind of touch on that a little bit in the comics, a little bit, they had a big fight. I didn't read it. I heard it wasn't very good. Maybe I'll read it one day, but either way, my point is I think there's a possibility now because I think when Perlmutter took over the iteration of inhumans, they're like, we're done. We're not touching this anymore. And I think that what you could do is, release some kind of Terrigen mist where it like all these people become mutants or like, you know, they become even more apparent and more problematic, if you will, or the fact their powers are becoming more prevalent. Something like that, I think is a possibility where it releases the mutant gene that was maybe established in the inhumans or whatever. And all of a sudden it comes out and that is like the big retcon of maybe the, the, the MCU. And then it affects the mutants in the, in the comic books or something like that. Because right now the comic books, X-Men's in a whole different, I can't even, I don't even want to go there. It's insane. But that's one way you could do that. It'd be a little bit more, it'd still keep that mutant gene idea with a Terrigen bomb mist where it could like release it because be the out, if you will. I don't know. I, I'm I'm also down with the idea of them super in hiding still. I know that's not in, in, in Professor X and Cerebro mm-hmm. shadowing everybody. I still like the idea the best, but I don't think the multiverse is the, is the way to do it. I think that's the, that's the super, super, super cheat way, which I think I, I'm not, me personally, not in favor of. I mean, I'm okay with it because it I understand the reasons for it. And look, I, I do like the idea of Hugh Jackman as Wolverine in the MCU. I also do like the idea of a new actor being able to make the role their own and and be in that role in the long term in the MCU. I think that's the the issue with Hugh Jackman is if you could talk him into coming back, is he going to come back for one movie or is he just going to come back for, or would he be willing to come back for multiple movies? And because I I do feel like that would be the biggest version of the story is you get Hugh Jackman's Wolverine and, and certainly the most exciting to a general audience. But I don't know. Like I, I do like the idea of the multiverse because it does allow things to be established and get things moving a little more quickly. At the same time, though, maybe there are pitfalls to that, that you do too much too soon and then you exhaust the idea as opposed to establishing mutants over time. But I think the biggest thing for me, though, is it's the picking and choosing. Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, that's worth holding on to. Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool, worth holding on to. And, you know, a couple of other versions of the characters, sure. But... I want a completely new Cyclops, a completely new Storm. Uh, there's a lot of things that, a lot of iterations from the Fox universe that I don't all need to be moved over. But if you are, if you eventually merge timelines, perhaps you only get the versions that everybody wants, and then everything else is brand new. Um, which leads up leads us to a question. We have our, our last few questions here that aren't necessarily about any specific projects, but the multiverse in general. Uh, one from uh, Justy Check 12. 
Do you reckon the multiversal war could lead into something like Secret Wars 2015? I hope not. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that story. Uh, I don't know. Where, I, I don't think you were either, Paul. Uh, Jonathan well, Hickman's version of Secret Wars. Well, okay. The, I like the, the concept of it, <laughs> sort of. Um, I didn't. And, and look, I, I love a lot of Hickman stuff, but Secret Wars, yeah. definitely not my favorite as far as Marvel events and not my favorite Marvel event from him. I think that Secret Wars... What it lacked for me was, you know, it just it didn't have the stakes that it was supposed to have because it just it felt it it felt like some of the worst things that can happen creatively with the multiverse, which sounds like a slam on Jonathan Hickman. It's not like I, I think he's he's a brilliant writer. He's a brilliant writer. He, he is. There's he no is. question about that. And and probably what I didn't like about Secret Wars 2015 is things I wasn't smart enough to understand. And that's a strong possibility when we're talking about Hickman. But what it didn't what made it not work for me is I, I didn't feel by the time we got to the main event of Secret Wars, I didn't feel like I was invested in his new battle world and the iterations mm. of the characters. And it, and it just felt like a mishmash of a lot of things for the sake of being this mishmash and alternate versions of characters. But it, because I didn't care about a lot of the characters involved, I didn't get the sense of exactly. stakes that I needed to have. And so it was it was way more concept than character, I felt, in his yes. version of Secret Wars. That said, I do think they would take... I, I do think there will be secret wars in the MCU. I agree. The multiverse seems like it's going to play a key part in that. Yes. And so with all of that in mind, they will borrow, I think, some of the the best conceptual ideas from Jonathan Hickman and then fill in other information from the original version of Secret Wars. Plus, mm -hmm. like they always do in the MCU because they never adapt anything like for like they will have their own ideas for what mm -hmm. Secret Wars is going to be in the MCU. But they do love Hickman over at Marvel Studios, so the idea that some ideas from his Secret Wars would make it in, like, you know, Converging Earth, which was kind of the lead-up to Secret Wars, like, I, I feel like the, the necessity of the Secret Wars, like, because of converging timelines and, and whatever else, mm -hmm. I think some of those ideas will make it into it. But as far as the the overall story, no, that's that's not going to make it, and it shouldn't. No. I'm with you 100%. I was just going to say that in case you didn't. I think they're going to incorporate a lot of different aspects into Secret Wars. It's going to happen. It's too much of a, a money-making name. Secret Wars, I mean, it was literally... Uh, a name made by people for back in Mattel who said kids love the word secret and war. So let's put it together. I mean, it's literally marketed for mm -hmm. like the demographic to, uh, us, you know? And so and it's a great name. It is a, a fantastic name. Secret Wars is perfect. Yeah. What, what I will say, my prediction for secret wars is this, it's going to be, uh, I think an amalgam combination of, of everything you're saying, but also sprinkling some contests of champions. Yes. Meaning like, so we're talking like old school, like with the grandmaster and collector potentially. I think there's going to be something like that where there's going to be a multiverse. I wouldn't be surprised if Kang is involved. I mean, he was involved in the original secret wars, but it's very, he's only in it for like three issues, but it's funny. I mean, um, Kang could that, potentially take the role the, of the beyonder in exactly. the MCU version of secret wars. And he could have like people have factions, you know, and I think there's going to be something like that where there's going to be some kind of battle royal where it's going to be that civil war kind of idea of it's going to be not just a hero versus villain, but 
hero versus hero, different dimensions. That's what I think we're going to get into. And I think that's what probably you hear all these, you know, the Russos, I think, have gone on record saying they would love to do Secret Wars because they probably have an idea of what they want to do. Totally. And I think they're going to, so I think there's going to be something like that where there's going to be, they're going to take all these different elements of, of these Marvel comics that were hugely successful, like a Secret Wars, Contest of Champions. Mm-hmm. And then, then we're going to get into like the whole multiverse idea of like them coming together. And which then, like you said, John, you brought up a great idea. This is where I think mutants could potentially then they could retcon their whole universe afterwards. So meet like your whole idea of merging worlds. Once right. they merge like these all these universes, they all of a sudden could be like, oh, mutants have always been here. They're here, whatever. And then we just accept it because the worlds all merge into like after a secret war. So that could be the cheat as well. I'd be into that. It's very heady and a lot to you know take in, but it's, there is, I think that's a potential idea too. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and certainly it, it feels like secret wars is a direction that we are heading. It's really more of how quickly we get there. Like, is it going to be 10 years or is it going to be more like within the next five to seven years? Cause I know it took so long to get to Infinity War and Endgame, but think of how many projects that was. You know, you get to, you know, 20, 22 movies for Avengers Endgame being the 22nd movie. Well, we add to the MCU at a much faster rate these days with a handful of movies and series every single year. So uh, the idea of us getting to culmination events perhaps a little sooner uh, than we used to, uh, that certainly is uh, is a possibility. So maybe Secret Wars isn't as far away as it might uh, might seem based on our understanding of the of timelines based on the Infinity Saga. Uh, another question, uh, two more left here. This second to last one comes from Armand. Uh, it's not so much a question as it is uh, a command or request. Please lay out the ground rules uh, that the multiverse should abide uh, should abide by. Armand actually asked for five. I'm amending the question a little bit. I don't have five off the top of my head, and and I don't really think that it should be. Five. Um, I I don't really know that that's the way. Uh, that's certainly not the way I would look at it. Um, I do think there need to be ground rules for the multiverse. I, I wouldn't want to put just arbitrarily or, or right now five rules of how things are supposed to be. But I would call out the things that that are concerning about the multiverse as a concept and whether or not that is something that we really want to uh, play a part in this and, and, you know, how maybe Marvel studios would need to manage that. And, and one of the things that I, I, I don't want is I, I don't want the multiverse to be, I don't want the multiverse to be more concept than character and story that we just have the benefit of infinite possibilities. So we just go ahead and we try and explore all of them. Like they, we can't, you know, there, there's not enough. That's the nature of, th- of something that's infinite is you're not going to be able to cover all of it. So cover the parts that that really matter, the really the parts that are interesting to us and engaging to us as, as an audience. Um, and all of that really boils down to character and, and our emotional investment in the characters who are involved. So it's really more of making sure that you never lose character in the you know massive nature of the concept that character still must reign supreme in the multiverse just as it did in the sacred timeline and uh, and speaking and related to that i don't want the multiverse to be a catch-all solution 
that eliminates stakes. And what I mean by that is don't use variance in such a way that it makes the absence and or death of characters meaningless. For example, just because you can doesn't mean you should just go get like unlimited Robert Downey Jr. Tony Starks, um, you know, or, or Chris Evans, Captain America, who are not, you know, old man Steve. You want to make sure that the things you do still matter and you have to toe that line very carefully. Now, they did that very well in Loki. Like, I don't think they took anything away from Loki's death in Infinity War by saying, here's a different fork in the road where this Loki became the Loki you knew for part of the sacred timeline became a variant and went on and went down a different path. So you can bring characters back in that sense. So it's not like a steadfast rule that you can't do it. But when you do, you really have to make sure it means something and also understand that we as an audience are investing in a new character. And there might be some overlap, like obviously the Loki we know from the Loki series has a lot of overlap with the one that we knew from the MCU in terms of living most of his life was the same. It's the last few years that changed. But at the same time, that was a very pivotal few years for that Loki. And and what I think they were very successful in doing in the series is they both had a redemption arc. The Loki we knew from the prime, you know, MCU timeline that died in Infinity War and the Loki we watched in this series, they both had redemption arcs, but they were executed very, very differently. And, you know, our Loki kind of had a chance to see what his life was and learn from the life that he didn't ultimately live. So that that's where you create even more overlap in the experiences of these two Lokis, but still totally had his own story that we can invest in where, we're sort of playing off of the investment that we had in the original version of Loki, but we're also have brand new experiences to invest us in this specific version that we're following in this story. And that has to happen anytime you're doing this, whether you're using, whether you're bringing back Robert Downey Jr. or Chris Evans or whoever, or Scarlett Johansson or whoever that we're, we're still, you can't just cash in on what we're already invested in. You have to give us the new stuff as well. So don't cheapen character, story, or stakes uh, via the multiverse. And so you you really have to be careful with that. But by the way, I don't think Marvel Studios, because they're not listening, I don't think they need me to say that. I think they already know that. And I think they've already shown that because they showed that level of care with the Loki series. I'm not really worried about them falling into those traps with the multiverse. Uh, they're all over the place and, and easy to fall into. But when you have a creative team that that knows to watch out for those things and and avoid and how to avoid them, uh, then you're going to end up in a good spot. So, yes, there are issues with the multiverse, um, yeah. but the main thing is, you know, make sure that that character matters, uh, character matters most. Exactly. I'm, I'm with you 100 percent on that one. Last question comes in from Lauren it sort of relates to this. Do you think we'll see any variants of characters we know in upcoming projects? Yes, Totally. Um, I, I think the question is, well, we know like we're probably going to see very vari- uh, variants of Spider-Man, you know, Tobey mm-hmm. Maguire, Andrew Garfield, Tom Holland. But would we see variants of characters we know played by the same actor that we already know, I, I think is uh, another interesting question. We've already seen that now with Loki, multiple Loki variants just within the series. So it stands to reason that, yes, we could see that in uh, the MCU. And I know this certainly creates the path for bringing back 
Tony Stark, you know, and Robert Downey Jr. in that role. And maybe eventually we do get there. I, I don't know, but um, I, I think we will see things like that. Maybe I don't know that it will be Downey as, as Tony Stark, but yes, we will see variants of characters we know. And I do think we will see it with the same actors as uh, those characters that we know. But I, I think the question will be, how do we see that and, and how is it done in a way that still, you know, that doesn't cheapen any of the stories that have already been told or what's going to be mm-hmm. told in the present and future. But yeah. I, I have full confidence that Marvel Studios will be able to successfully navigate that because uh, they just did it with uh, with this series. So I trust them. And and, you know, speaking of that, you know, we talk about Secret Wars and we talk about the Russos and and maybe that dream team, the creative team of. Uh, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely as as the writers, uh, you know, who were there with the Russos for all of their Marvel movies. Um, and I, I certainly look, I'm not taking anything away from Marcus and McFeely, um, but I also don't think that's your only creative team option. You know, Michael Waldron is the one kicking this whole thing off with Loki. And if he if he does just as good of a job on Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness that he and his team did on uh, on the Loki series, then maybe he's the guy who goes on and writes Secret Wars, and maybe that's the Russos collaborating with him, or maybe it's a different director who's doing it. You know, there's no rule that says it has to always be the Russos. Not that I would ever be upset about that, because the Russos and, and Eminem as a creative team are amazing and, and pretty much unstoppable. Yeah. So I would be happy for their return, but also just as excited to see uh, a new creative team you know, or a new, you know, some returning creative team members and, and some new ones going into the next big Marvel culmination event, if that just so happens to be Secret Wars, or maybe it's uh, something else. But that's it for our questions. I mean, there there were others, but, uh, you know, eventually I got to call it at two and a half hours for this podcast uh, that was basically became one of our longer spoiler reviews. <laughs> Hopefully you enjoyed it. Oh, um, if not, sorry, we get to try again next week. Uh, but right. be, but uh, before we get out of here, have some folks to thank. Thank you very much to Jeff H, Kyler R, uh, James T, MGP, and Ryan M for being some of the latest patrons over at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, where they're getting access to exclusive shows not available anywhere else, including the Patreon credit scene for this episode, where we, we will be talking about Michaela Cole joining the cast of Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and some of the roles that she might play in that film. So check that out over at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber available at the link in our show notes. And then make sure you're following us in all those places you can. We are at MCU fan show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Paul, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Herman 22 with two N's, AKA P thug. My YouTube channel is the comic binge. That is just the comic binge. We had a great uh, show last week. I thought we went in deep with uh, Avengers forever. So if you want to read the comic, read the comic, Listen to a bunch of comic book lovers just talk about if it's MCU-worthy uh, essential reading, which I think it is. So go out there and check out that vi- new video and all these other videos I have on there. And, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, people who have uh, subscribed already. Thank you very much. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thanks for listening to MCU Fan Show. We'll see you next time. <laughs>